podcast. Check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. Fresh off the road, Sturgill Simpson, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Are you kidding me? This is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm here. You're here. I, you know, I had heard about your music from several people online. I don't remember who made me take the plunge and download your shit. Like a bunch of people had recommended you. I had Shooter Jennings on, and along those lines, like people said, like, "Hey, man, if you really dig Shooter Jennings, you got to check out Sturgill Simpson." Right. And so somewhere along the line, I downloaded. Um, I think it was, uh, I, well, I downloaded two CDs, but the uh, Turtles All the Way Down song, mm-hmm. that was the first song I heard. I was like, oh, shit, this guy's doing something unusual. You're doing some psychedelic country music, man. You're you're mixing shit up in a very bizarre way. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know. I grew up listening to everything, so, but uh, when for whatever reason, if I go to write or sing a song, I can only do one of two things, and that's either, you know, sing country or, or bluegrass is what I primarily grew up on. So, uh, I don't know. I, the, the first record I did was a very traditional country record in terms of thematical and lyrical elements. And uh, I've said this before, but it's true. I just I, I reached a point where I was like, I'm I'm very happily married. I'm, I'm sober, you know, for... for the, the longest period and, and just so drinking songs and heartache and all that wasn't something that I, I was particularly very excited about tackling again you know right so just do, like, well, do you feel like you have to like hit certain themes if you're doing country music because it just sort of falls into that it it seems to be somewhat self-restricting in, in a lot of ways it hasn't evolved very much even since you know 60s or 70s right there there was there was periods that are very dated now like 70s and 80s country you can hear the production values and it just there's nothing time you know even some of the most timeless singers that ever that ever played the music the records that they made got subjected to these really bad taste choices so right it just doesn't stand up um so I don't know. Dave, my producer, is a really close friend of mine, Dave Cobb, who actually did Shooter's first couple records. Um, Shooter's a buddy. He's a good dude. Love that um, dude. Yeah, very, very sweet. Such a cool guy to hang out with, too. Yes. Um, Dave and I just kind of, you know, I I came to Nashville about four years ago, almost five now, I guess, and I, I just, I knew more than anything what I didn't want to do. And... Um, and I met with Dave Shooter, actually, I think, told him one night we were all at a Billy Joe Shaver concert. I didn't know any of those guys. And uh, they were sitting upstairs. It was like Shooter and Jamie Johnson and some other cats and Dave. And uh, apparently Shooter was like, hey, man, you see that guy right there? And Dave's like, yeah, he's like, it's the best fucking country singer in Nashville. So the next day, somehow my manager got an email from Dave, and we had lunch. And I was like, all right. I, he's from Georgia. We both love the same records growing up. I just kind of feel like I know this dude. I can work with this guy. Right. And there was nobody in there because <clears throat> I paid for both albums entirely by myself or like dug a big giant hole of debt. Wow. And then. How much does it cost to put out an album? The first one, um, I, I, I thought when I was doing it, this may very well be the only time I ever get to do this, you know. Right. And I wanted something that I could be proud of and something my family could be proud of for once, you know what I mean? I just, I knew it had to be right. And I couldn't compromise in any way. And. Um, there was a certain sound we were after, so Dave, he said, well, let's just get the guys that played on those old records. I'm like, yeah, let's fucking let's just do that, you know? I didn't, I didn't know how the game worked. Right, know? right. 
So then I'm looking up, and next thing I know, I'm in the studio, there's like this guy's like Pig Robbins, who pretty much invented country piano. He played on, I think his first session was with George Jones on White Lightning. and What a fucking name. Yeah, he's on, he played on Blonde <laughs> on Blonde. Yeah, he's this old, blind... Pig, Pig Robbins? Pig, Hargis Pig Robbins. What a great East fucking name. God, that's an American name. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> he, Actually, uh, he could probably be English, too. English... We had a lot of fun. the pig. Because he, I mean, he toured with everybody. He played on Patsy Cline records and Bob wow. records. And just, wow. So, you know, and, and I, I knew when those sessions ended, I knew that I had absolutely done my best because I had to. You know, these guys would just bust your balls in a second, you know. And uh, so we, I feel like we sort of cleared my throat with that one. And, and then, lo and behold, a year later, I'm, I, I found myself in a position where I was going to get to make another record. I was like, all right, well, maybe I'll, this one will be a little bit more selfish or self-absorber for me. So we, Dave and I incorporated a lot of other elements of, I guess, sonic templates you don't normally hear in most country music. And that gave me the freedom to kind of go out there with the themes as well. So um, I was doing a lot of reading at the time. Um, always had, like, weird shit, you know. And it, uh, the, we'll get there, but... Uh, I don't know, man. It was the most the most truly inspirational group of songs I feel like I've ever written because it was just from such a fresh place. You know, maybe that's why the record's done. Well, it's very unique. You know, it's yeah. very unique in that you it has a lot of country sound to it, but like that Turtles All the Way Down song. I mean, who the fuck is doing songs about mind-expanding consciousness, expanding drugs? in country music i mean that's just not being done but it's still like really good country music like i i like a lot of country music you know and the, I, even songs that are even like a song that's sort of a classic song with all those <laughs> themes that you talked about before like drinking a heartache right. if it's well done yeah, i still yeah. really like it you know absolutely no i mean if it's if it's if it's pure yeah. and honest and yeah. it's great music, I just didn't feel like I had anything to offer there. Right, the right, time. right. Yeah. Um, the sound, though, is uh, I think people are starting to accept <coughs> that, not not even starting to accept, but so, sort of, for a long time, country got classified amongst a lot of young people as being like a dumb kind of music, you know, and un unfairly so. And I think that as some young people started getting into some of the other country, like getting into some Johnny Cash songs, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, you start going, oh, this is country too. Okay, well, you, you can't say Johnny Cash songs are dumb. You just can't. I mean, they were just, he had too much crazy shit going on in those songs. You know, it's undeniable. You there's mean, a lot going on in between the lines. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. a lot going on in A Boy Named Sue. Yeah. I mean, just think about that song. I mean, who... They, he had some great fucking songs and then he did the highway men and that was an interesting song too like that thing that he did with willie nelson and uh who, who else was it was it well like christopherson and Waylon, Cri yeah was it Waylon? Yeah. yeah and they did this this crazy song about reincarnation that to this day if you never heard it um go go find that song the highway men and uh it's uh this really wild song because it's all <laughs> Diff different verses sung by a different guy like willie will sing one verse and then johnny comes in i fly a starship oh my god that's a good fucking song it's just woo. well you know weirdly it and it's it's so it's funny to me that the country has this really rigid perception by the public yeah. i mean all the if you look back at any of of the really good great country singers they were all batshit man i mean it was just like some of those colorful weird characters to yeah. ever walk through american history you know so i mean it 
for me, it's not really much of a stretch. I didn't feel like I was really going out there too far. Um, you know what it is, man? It's Southism. It's like racism towards the South. <coughs> it's like thinking that anybody who has a Southern accent's got to be a moron. Thinking anybody who's singing country songs, they've, they've got to suck. That's it's what it is. It's an urban form of classism. Like we, you look at that style of music, and they automatically some some people did for a while. But I think guys like Shooter, guys like you, you you guys are opening up. And Honey Honey Band does a lot of country type sound. Uh, I think a lot of people are opening <coughs> up people's ideas of what that sound really is. And you hear a great song, it's like God damn it, that's a great song. It doesn't matter if they got a banjo playing in the background. You can't tell me that song didn't fuck you up. Right. You know. I think I think people are starting to realize like there's it's just good man there's just good there's good disco songs man okay you ever heard kiss I was made for loving you it's a good goddamn disco song I don't give a fuck what anybody says I'm not a kiss hater man <laughs> I loved the monkeys when I was a kid dude you know? the monkeys had some good fucking songs well, I don't care if they were know, put Neil, together Neil Diamond wrote half that shit did he really yeah that's why the songs are so fucking great man I mean, oh wow that makes a lot of sense wow that's incredible. I like Neil Diamond songs. I, I fucking Neil said Diamond. it. I fucking said it. I don't care what he's doing with his hair. I'd like a goddamn Neil Diamond song. Any day. Yeah, man. That guy's a genius. There's, okay. and I think when you expand your horizon, sort of open up your ideas of uh, musical appreciation, like I've tried really hard with a lot of stuff, and it just can't catch. Like every few months or so, I try with jazz. I'll throw some Coltrane on, and I'll be like, I'll be in my car, and then five, <coughs> five minutes in, I fucking snap. I just can't take it anymore. And yeah, I'll not... throw some Kid Rock on or something <laughs> just, to, just to turn it the other way. I just can't do it. Probably the only music I never got into. Like I like hillbilly jazz, but I don't uh like I don't know. Like Charles Mingus and guys like that maybe I can listen. But even in in brief doses, because I, I just prefer like a melody, you know? Like, yeah. I like a song, a good song. I think one thing that it's good for, I <coughs> I like jazz at a bar. Like if you're having a couple of drinks and some jazz is playing in the background, it's not like a very recognizable song. It's just interesting music. It's interesting like background music. But as far as it being my main focal point, you know, not really. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I need to find the right what stuff. You, what do you listen to? I tried a bunch of different shit. Thelonious Monk. I've tried some Coltrane. I've tried. It's obviously, they're, they're great musicians. I mean, there's no denying they have skill. But it just doesn't grip me in any way. I don't know what it is. You ever heard uh, Bitches Brew by Miles Davis? Yes, the yes. Yeah, that's yeah. a pretty killer live. Pretty killer. Um, do, I can get down with that. Yeah, I mean, there's some riffs that I, I really enjoy for a long, but I can't like sit like I can sit and listen to the same Leonard Skinner album maybe like three times in a row, you know. But it's very hard for me to listen to the same jazz stuff over and over and over again. I just I don't know whatever it is. I'm I'm missing it. Woody Allen's got it, and I'm missing it. <laughs> you know, oh, there's there's a, there's a saying. Are you gonna go? Play jazz until the money runs out. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, we were in uh, just in Philadelphia. I was in uh, Philly on Friday night, and we passed by this jazz bar, and we thought, man, we should go after the show. Go fucking see some jazz. Never did it. No. No. We thought about it. It's one of those things I always say I should I've do. I've never said that. I've never <laughs> found myself. Let's go hear some jazz. So how did you get into singing country music? Was that what you've always sang, or did you, did you fuck around with other forms of music first? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, actually, I didn't really have a choice. Both my grandfathers played, um, you know, well, actually, we're in eastern Kentucky, where I'm originally from, everybody's really 
plays music but it's it's what you do after work you know it's really like, yeah my mom's brother like all his friends they had this house and they just there's these two tw- twin brothers and, they, and both of them never married so they turned their house in, into a fucking practice space and they just had this pa and lights and shit that stayed set up all the time wow and uh so i was a real young kid and i'd go over there i'd always play guitar and uh yeah i mean before i even really knew anything about music or songwriting i think i was learning how to play in a band just from hanging out with those guys all wow and, uh, but yeah it was never encouraged you know it's never like you don't think oh i can do this for a living that makes sense right you just do it because everybody's doing it right and um, nobody thinks they're gonna leave that situation or or for many other reasons yeah yeah it, yeah it's uh it is what it is but so yeah dad's dad was a big bluegrass guy played mandolin and just shoved that shit down my throat i mean repeatedly until i accepted it and then mom's my other grandfather he was like a big merle haggard marty Har- robbins guy and had an old gibson a very beautiful voice um he he, he probably more than anybody We'd watch Hee Haw and shit when I was a kid and TNN, and he'd kind of tell me which of the guys were actually playing and, and the ones that were just holding the guitar as a prop. Oh, wow. Or, uh, you know. Um, yeah. And, like, Roy Clark and Jerry Reed and guys like that. Huge. I mean, I, yeah, I knew by the time I was five. Like, I didn't give a fuck about anything else ever. Wow. Uh, school, I could have dropped out of school in third grade. It would have been <laughs> the same result, you know. Um, That's interesting. So you were kind of groomed. You know, in at least way. in the music sense, but not maybe in becoming a professional. Right. Yeah, without knowing it, maybe. Because um, I'd never really played in many bands. Um, but yeah, I had an older cousin, Mike, too. He was like six or seven years older than me. So, you know, just older teenage neighbors with Chevy Novas and shit listening to Guns N' Roses, when, <laughs> you know, when you're in fifth grade. And But Mike really, I remember very vividly one weekend, we'd go up to visit, they had a farm in Ohio, and... uh I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, and he, he said, I remember he knew I was really into music, and I was playing guitar already, and he's like, what are you listening to? And I don't know, I mean, it probably was the Monkees or something, and he took me to his bedroom, and he had one of those, like, tower stereo systems with the glass door and the, oh. the super headphones, and he sent me, and CDs had just come out, you know, this is like 87, 88, I don't know, and uh, he just had this, already had this fucking mountain of CDs, and he's like, here. And it was like Zeppelin box set and Cream and Hendrix and uh, Humble Pie and Traffic and all these bands. I mean, it was like a fucking bomb just went off in my head. Wow. And that was it. I was done. My, my life was ruined. I re- very clearly remember the transition between records and CDs. I remember the fir- very first CDs showing up at the record store. Because kids today probably don't even appreciate it because of the last 10 years of the internet has dominated digital downloads ever since mm-hmm. Napster came along and then iTunes and everybody knows how to get shit online and there's no record stores anymore. Obviously there's a few, but I mean, it used to be like a local community spot. Well, I lived in Newton, Massachusetts and we used to go down to this place that was right across the street from a place that I worked at. I worked at this um, ice cream place called Newport Creamery. Uh, we made hamburgers or washed dishes and did all that shit. And uh, across the street from Newport Creamery was the record store. All kids would go there after school. It was our own cultural, it was the only like output to like the, the rock and roll of the world. But you wanted, every week a new record came out. You yep, know? So you had, yep. You just had to be like, mm. And I remember when the CDs came out, everybody's like, what is this? Right. What the fuck? Look at it, it's got a rainbow in it. If you wiggle it, it makes rainbows. Well, the digital thing, I think, in a lot of ways, it's great, but I, I blame it almost entirely for the downward spiral of, you know, the quality. 
of music. Yeah, I mean the seventies, man. If you if you got a record deal, you had to be bad the fuck ass. You right. know, you could, there was no slop, right? Um, Pro Tools and shit to go and make everybody, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Actually, that was a quote. Pig said this to me. He's like, you know what they used before Pro Tools? And we're like, fucking pros. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that sounds like something a guy named Pig would say. That's awesome. Yeah, they used to have to, you know, the sound was a different sound too, right? I mean, the people that are real um, vinyl heads, they'll tell you. I'm, I don't recognize it. I'm, I'm, I'm not educated. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm kind of an audiophile fucking are super, you? super geek about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've never gotten into it. I should, I should really get, get a record player. I know Marin's really into that shit. He keeps stacks of them at home. He listens to them. They meticulously clean them and put them down. <laughs> you have to have the right earphones and. I guess it's got like what is the sound that's different? Because I don't listen to vinyl. I think it's just there's a warmth to it. A warmth. Um, everything just sounds really settled and cohesive. Whereas wow. in, in digital, I, I hear the separation, especially in stereo. You can just hear it's almost like you're sitting at the mixing board, and you just like some asshole decided that guitar needed to be like a hard two o'clock right there. But in, in a vinyl, it just kind of seems more three dimensional, like it's coming from around you. I feel like. Wow. So you can sort of hear the different tracks. Oh, yeah. You know, I, maybe I just don't have a fucking ear for music. Maybe that makes sense. Some of my, my choices. You've got to know what you're <laughs> listening for. Is that what it is? Yeah. You weren't here when uh, we had Russell Peters on. Russell Peters is a stand-up comic, mm -mm. friend of mine, very funny guy. He's also a DJ. And uh, we were playing some songs, and he could pick out, it was a rap song, and he could pick out what the samples were from. And mm -hmm. I was like, what? How do you hear that? Like, I didn't even hear. He's like, yeah, you could hear right here. Like, that would be from, you know, 1984. I was like, I don't know how the fuck you just did that. I trust you, but I don't know how the fuck you just did that. He's got a separate knowledge base of old music, too. Yeah, yeah. reference from, but. Yeah, his is all old hip-hop stuff. He loves, like, old hip-hop stuff. So, the thing about the record stores that people loved was that it was like, like a sort of like because we didn't have the internet mm -hmm. you would go there and it was like you would see like these it was on a, like a big piece of paper like holy shit here's you know here's the new bruce springsteen album like it's right there and you see oh wow it's like this is what he made this is what he's been doing for the right. past year yeah bruce has been you know writing all these songs and bam here we go we got well, you it. didn't wow. have you didn't have fucking youtube you didn't yeah. have you know i mean I think that's the worst thing that ever happened is now everything's so accessible and the kids' attention span is so short, they'll never know that experience to sit down and listen to an album all the way through and then just fucking obsess about it and then, you know, hold that physical thing, that, yeah. that sleeve in your hand, just like, what the fuck are these guys doing? Like, <laughs> like they got a secret laboratory and I don't think there's like a, there's something I don't know about, you Yeah. Know? And mystery, I guess, was the most important element of rock. Yeah. And that's just fucking gone. Do it's you remember when uh, The Wall came out? No, I wasn't. Bo I was born in '78. I mean, I remember oh. watching it way too young. But uh, I, I was in uh, high school when I found out about the wall. So it was after the wall had come out. But I remember sitting there with my friend. We had like a like the headphone jack thing plugged in, so you could have two headphones, mm -hmm. both listening to it. And you, the, how everything like ties in together. It seemed so beyond human reach, like that these guys figured out how to do all this. They they put these amazing songs and they just sort of flow into each other mm -hmm. like some wild ride you're on or like Dark Side of the Moon very similar 
You know, like the, the song they always link, the, the album they always link up to, uh, The Wizard of Oz. I mean, that album, just everything just flows together in this crazy way. It did feel like they were in a lab somewhere. Well, Ma Marvin Gaye would do that a lot, too. Or, uh, Willie Nelson did a lot of concept records. They call it song cycle, where you just, you don't ever feel like there's an actual pause anywhere in the album. It's just this one cohesive work. Wow. Um, and that does take time and playing. We did a little bit of it on Metamodern. We're kind of, you know, Pink Floyd and... Some other albums were definitely referenced while we were, we were cutting that shit towards the end. When you first decided that you were going to be a professional country music singer, did you decide slowly and gradually, or did you just fucking dive in? I didn't. I only started my career about, or attempting to, to have a career about four years ago. Really? And I, and I never would have done it, to be completely honest. My, it was really my wife's idea. Um, so she's the one that really kind of encouraged me to go for it, and... Uh, Cause I, you know, I just, it was always something I did as a hobbyist and would write and play. And I get a lot of grief from friends, especially in my twenties. They're like, why aren't you out? You know, man, this is, you should be doing something. Cause we'd go to shows at clubs and they'd be like, this is fucking cool. We just, we'd rather be at home listening to you play, you know? And uh, I just, I don't know why I never thought. Uh, was it like the limitations of your environment? Maybe the people that you were well, around? I, I, or I moved to Nashville once in 2006. I went down cause you know, you can play in local bands, and you can, you know, if that's what you want out of it, that's great. And there's a lot of people that do that on a, on a hobbyist level. And it's what you, you know, like I said, it's what you do after work. And for me, that just never felt rewarding enough. You know, I never felt like I was giving everything I could to it. Right. And it, it's a very frustrating place, and I, and I ended up putting it down a lot of times because of that, because it just I felt like it was bringing me more heartache than it was. Uh, right. Um, so I, you know, took jobs and worked normal jobs, and I was out working a railroad job in utah for about almost four years and my my wife was out there with me i guess for whatever reason from dealing with the stress of that or i didn't realize at the time i wasn't fulfilling my fucking purpose joe rogan you know what i mean right. and, uh she kind of recognized that and i started writing a lot as a as a result of dealing with the stress from from my job and playing at home and she just kind of told me when she's like you know you don't suck at this and uh you know, you're going to wake up at 40 and know you never fucking tried. And then I'm stuck with your miserable ass. So, you know, <laughs> we sold everything and, and literally, man, she and I and our dog in a Ford Bronco drove to Nashville. And wow. That was like four years ago. So, and, I, and you know, now I was older. I was clean. I was, I was focused. I had, I had purpose. So I just, the first year, you know, you kind of got to get the lay of the land. And it's a, it's a hustle. It's a total shark tank. I just decided I wasn't going to have anything to do with that shit. Um, I'm not a social guy. I don't go to bars and clubs and things like that. And so, what is it like, just man? It's well, there's so many facets to it. You know, depending on what the, the industry, there's so many sides of the industry, and you that people fall into. And most, and I'd say the the bulk majority of it is is complete and total shameless opportunists. Hmm. Um, but then the musicians come, and everybody, you know, the thing about musicians, we're lazy as fuck, and nobody really wants to work. So you get all these guys, these side players, they're looking for songwriters to get gigs supporting or backing up, and they want like half the door of what you get paid for their services because they don't want to wait tables. And there's guys that are really good and earn that money. Um, and then there's this side of it. But it just really feels like, to me, the first time I feel like everybody I met, it's like literally, hey, man, how's it going? What can you do for me? And while they're talking to you, they're looking over your shoulder to see who else they should probably so be talking to. It's very Hollywood-like. It's getting more and more 
so is that just because of money you think because there's money in country well there's a lot of fucking money lot, country there, that's where really that's the only thing still selling cds that's why the labels are still they still got cd players I saw, I saw something last night there's gonna be no platinum albums this year for the, for the first time ever. I mean, now wow. if you have a hit record, you drop an album on a major label. If you sell 200,000 copies in a week, that's a success. T- Ten years ago, if you sold 200,000 copies your first week, they'd have dropped your ass. Isn't that incredible? You know? So the, the whole thing's just, it really is the Wild West. When the internet and social media, um, it, it affords guys like me and a lot of other people like me doing what I'm doing, the opportunity to reach people without having to go down certain avenues i guess and country didn't used to be like that like nashville used to be like what what was it like it was you know gatekeepers and um well when you when when exactly do you mean i mean before it became more hollywood-esque the way it is now has it always had an element of show business to it oh for sure yeah they do tacky real well I mean, it's kind of like <laughs> invented, man. um but it, it, I wouldn't say how there's a certain LA element to Nashville that's that's kind of come on in the last two or three years more so. Um, it's very hip. I blame that Hootie and the Blowfish guy when he crossed over. Darius Rucker. Yeah, when Darius got in, a black guy who sings good country. Charlie like, Pride, God man. Damn it! I know, but it's been a while. Yeah, true. Darius snuck right in there, and all those white people came running with him. <laughs> That's what happened. That's what happened. He it's, brought him in. It's a very interesting situation. I, I don't. I, it doesn't. There's really, a fakeness to it. Yeah, it's very, it's very studied and affected. Yes, studied and affected is a perfect way to describe it. Fakeness is um, me falling short again. <laughs> I just, I, it, I, you know, a lot of journalists I've been baited. I can't tell you how many times they want me to get like pulled into this negative conversation, oh. and just bash and talk shit on it, and and it, and. and I could, yeah, I could do that, but you know, there's there's so much negativity already. I don't yeah. feel like, I, whatever this uh, um, opportunity is, I don't want to use it for that. Right. Well, you know what? Quite you know? honestly, the 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 negative aspects of anything, whether it's show business or you know, stand up comedy or music, I don't think there's anything negative about talking about them. I think the positive effect of talking about them is that young people recognize that they're not crazy, that they, they sense something goofy about this, and then it becomes like more clearly defined what's goofy about it. And it gives them a high standard to not set a trap for themselves. Like, uh, I know in comedy, there's a thing that guys do when they first start out, which really fucks you up you're just trying to get laughs like you're saying things you don't even believe right because you're just hoping it'll work because you're just terrified because you're on stage and i think similarly in music you could just start making stuff that you think like you know like one of those pros that writes those pop songs you know those guys those weird dudes that just know how to like make something that clicks in but there's like no feeling to it at all oh, they sit in cubicles in yeah. groups of four and five and pump that <laughs> shit. I'm, I'm not kidding that's a reality like it yeah go to work there's a big goddamn difference between that and like someone who's writing shit like you're writing someone who's like writing shit that resonates it's i I, I can tell no matter what your influences are in this life musically or even while you're creating a song it's all filtering through your unique individual vision and that's entirely missing from all these like poppy things and that's like something that people connect with and some i mean look there's something personal about songs that you know the dude wrote it, you know the guy singing it. Like like my friends in Honey Honey Band, 
they write all their shit. Mm-hmm. So when they're singing it and they're they're sitting here in the studio singing it, or you've seen them on stage, like that's their creation. It's a hundred percent. And there's like a uniqueness to that that your music has, that uh, a, a lot of like music that it's it hits like a different frequency as opposed to like a poppy frequency. And, you, and these people that are coming in that are just trying to exploit it and monetize it, they probably that doesn't register with them. Or even if it does, they don't give a shit because that's not where they're there. They're just worried about the quarterly report. Yeah. They're, they're very seldom do any of the people running labels actually know anything or give a shit about music. It's just really more. That's really more of a recent development. And a lot of them are run by very young guys now, like in their thirties, because the old the old roost kind of went out or retired, right. and it kind of turned over. And uh, a lot of the dudes that were in L.A. in the eighties making all those awful hair metal band records. <laughs> Those producers and engineers, once that industry dried up, a lot of them moved to Nashville. If you turn on the radio today, you'll find that a lot of that shit sounds exactly like a Poison record. There's a reason for that. Right. Um, wow. That's interesting. That formulaic way of creating it. Making hits. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I think two or three decades ago, they, they the, the label still offered up the other. that You had all these great bands that were making art because they knew they were going to sell a fuck ton of copies and make their money back so they were willing to take the risk and now there's just really no risk takers and I don't know if that's because of it some t- uh, maybe there's a lack of visionaries you is know. it just because the money's dried up it's just they don't I think they're just they're all sitting in their corner offices looking out the window wishing it would go back to 1996 and, and twiddling their thumbs and pray into a, di- a dying business model because they, they're completely dependent on radio for sale, sales and singles and cumulus and clear channels, pretty much all but completely locked that out to a very politically selected group of songs, which somebody paid probably at least a million dollars just to get it in rotation. Um, you know, they'll pay a million or two million dollars to make a hit. Um, That's so crazy. That's sad. That's sad to hear. It's a business. It is a business, but it's sad to hear. It's just like flipping real estate or something. Yeah. Um, so but there's no artist development anymore. So, and you know, Luckily, I didn't try to do this at 22 or 26 because now I've worked real jobs and I was able to understand that, the mechanical aspect of it all. And, you know, there's that's not the only way to do it anymore. You can just kind of bypass around that. It's a much longer, harder road. But but then again, it's not. But then because it's, if you catch fire, right? you know, it just, just spreads across the internet. It's a much more rewarding road, I can tell you that. Oh, fuck yeah. It's got to be. I can only imagine. I mean, I would imagine that being stuck singing some songs that you don't believe in and that, that are not really good, but everybody, you know, is really responding to, and you have something inside you that you wish you could have got out, but now you're trapped, you know, that's got to suck. I would imagine. Do you remember when Garth Brooks came back with a different character? Chris Gaines, man. Yeah. Oof. Put the wig on. There was nobody there to say, hey, maybe <laughs> you shouldn't do this. Like, he was surrounded by yes people. You just know. Cause somebody was like, "Yeah, that's that's fuck. That'll be cool." <laughs> Someone didn't say, "Wait, what? Wait, wait, what? What? Wait, what? You're gonna hold on. You, what are you gonna do? You're gonna put a wig on, and you're gonna change your name, and but everybody's gonna know it's you. So what are you doing? Are you playing a character now? You're playing a character. It was you're, high art, man. Yeah, you're a you're a goddamn superstar. Shit was you're, deep. You're selling some. You know, I got friends in low places, sold a lot of fucking copies. And what are you going to do now? You're going to put a fucking, look at him. Look at him. He had hair across his face. Remember that shit? He, he grew a soul patch. Like, what the fuck was going on there? 
It's his. It's his filtered interpret. I think he was going for like a a Ryan Adamsy sort of thing. I, don't know I think he f- just straight went crazy. I think he, that was he went fucking nuts. That's that, a very distinct possibility. He blew a rod right there. He's redlining his engine. Look at those eyes, man. That was blowing a rod in the engine, and then from then on, he kind of disappeared. You never hear about Garth Brooks anymore. Oh, he just came back. Well, he's going to, I mean, he'll still do well. He's got a lot of fucking hits, but it's been a long time where Garth Brooks is in the public consciousness. But meanwhile, in the 1990s or whatever it was, 80, I guess 90s, like early 90s, when did he, when was he just gigantic? Yeah. Like early nineties, man. He just kind of came out of nowhere. Gigantic. Uh, knocked it right out. It, it really, I think a lot of the stuff going on today is an absolute direct byproduct. Still, we're still getting the ripples of all that because at some point, country music turned into like a really shitty Van Halen concert. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, wait, not David Lee Roth. No. Sammy no. Hagar. Yeah, yeah. See? Van Hagar. I knew, I knew what you were gonna yeah. mean. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> that's a, you know it's fascinating His first two are religion yeah dude the, i think that the original van halen with david lee ross are the greatest bands of all time but without a doubt running with the devil to this day it's like if i'm on the treadmill and i throw on running with the devil i'll crank that bitch up an extra couple miles an hour fuck it you know it's just one of those songs man but they did just as well with sammy hagar they really did. It, it took Might have different, done better. They got more soccer moms. Yeah, what it, happened it, there? Commercially, I think it took them even more, it made them more accessible. In what a weird the fuck way. is that? I don't know. How does Aerosmith It was my start? first concert ever. My dad took, took me to see Van Halen in the fifth grade. Really? Yeah. Eddie, fucking Eddie Van Halen for, you know, for a fifth grader. That's, that's amazing, that's man. Heavy. In the fifth grade? Yeah. I think mine was the ninth grade and we went to see the Jay Giles band. Jay Giles' band was huge Killer. back then. Angels of Centerfold. <laughs> Love Stinks. They were giant, man. They had a lot of deep cuts. Yeah. Giant in my high school. Giant in 1981 or whatever the hell it was. Where are you from? Newton. Well, that's, Newton. Where, I, that's where I went to high school. Right. I was born in New Jersey. I grew up kind of all over the country. Lived in San Francisco from age 7 to 11. Lived in Florida from 11 to 13. Boston from 13 to... Probably 23, 24, and then New York for a couple of years, then California. So I'm a Californian now. I'm more Californian than anything I've ever been in my life. But this place is a mess. It's a fucking mess. <laughs> it's, it's not the worst place, though. It's just there's too many people. If you could whittle California, if you could whittle Los Angeles down to, like, one tenth of its size, mm-hmm. as far as like population wise. So just see, you know, if you ever go to Seattle, I bet it was the shit. I in bet the 40s it was the shit. Fifties, man. I mean, it was just like, it was the absolute shit. It's just a matter of like inconvenience and Seattle. overpopulation. Like, see, Seattle has like I lived in Seattle for a while. very few people. That town kicked my ass. Did it? Oh yeah. What was it? The rain. Among other things. The rain yeah. did get the rain, you. The rain, is, I think, is a direct contributor to a lot of the other problems people acquire while they live in Seattle. But uh, the rain keeps people from moving there, too. There's a good man. thing about that goddamn but rain. But it's beautiful. <laughs> it really is. So it's, beautiful. It's so be- especially the summers. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to beat Seattle in the summertime. It's, it's just that other yeah. nine months of the most dismal... I mean, I remember like hanging my towel up to dry after taking a shower, and, and you'd come in there two days later and it'd be like fucking lichen growing on. It's just a petri dish, you know. Yeah. So much precipitation that 
You just people are jacked up on coffee or heroin all the time. But I have friends that live in Seattle that will (laughs) fucking defend it to the death. Like right now, the voodoo chicken is raising its fist in anger. You wait till I get a hold of you. He fucking moved there from Indiana. My friend Voodoo Chicken. Uh, That's what his official stage name is. And when he did that, man, like he liked it way better than Indiana. And I'm like, that's good. That's good. But if you ever lived in Los Angeles, have you ever lived where it just doesn't fucking rain? Like we're babies. We're used to just soaking in that sun every day. Every day. We don't it's have like a bad 320 day. days a year? How about I mean? 370? Really? We have extra days here. That extra are Sundays? It doesn't fucking rain. It's a total drought. I mean, we're stealing water from the Colorado River or some shit. I don't know how we keep everything hydrated. Until some super genius guy figures out how to suck water out of the ocean. The, the, you want to get some oceanfront property about like 700 yards in because within like th- everybody's worried about the, the sea level rising all you have to do is figure out how to desalinate ocean water we'll drink that shit we'll use that shit in our toilets we'll just start extra golf courses with that fucking ocean that ocean won't be nothing don't worry about that thing rising oh you're worried about there being too much water oh don't sweat it we got that it doesn't rain and we're abusive when we find a resource if we could actually tap into the ocean beachfront people People would be fucking pissed because the beach would be like a couple hundred yards away in a few years. A mile and a half to the shoreline. We'd suck that bitch dry. (laughs) It may come to that. It might. It really might. It may very well. But I don't know. You know, man, I've only, every time I come to California, it's it's always like in and out. Yeah, quick. Another tour stop. We were here, we did Conan and played at the Troubadour a month or two back, and we were here for about four days, and that's the most time I've ever spent consecutively. In L.A., so but I've never been able to really get the lay of the land. It's and find out what I, I know. I like Redondo. Yeah, Redondo's nice. Very chill, bohemian kind of feel. That's where Tommy Buns lives. Tom Segura lives in Redondo. He fucking loves it. It's it's very chill. Like any of those beach communities are mm-hmm. very chill. L.A.'s great. It's great. I talk shit about it sometimes, but it's just the amount of people. I just don't think people value things that they have in too much abundance. And I think there's right. an issue with people when you get over a certain population. I think we just naturally get a little more callous or you just don't give a fuck about each other. Like, if you go to like a really small town and you go to the store, people say hi to each other. Because there's not that many fucking people. Right. There's only a few thousand people in the town. I mean, yeah, they're going to get some small-minded, gossipy bullshit, too. But I don't necessarily think that has to be the case in a small town. But I think the benefit of being in a smaller population is people are just like a little less intruded upon by sensory input. Well, everybody's a little less on edge. Yeah. California is just, there's 20 million people plus Mexicans in the city. When plus, I say plus Mexicans, plus Mexicans with respect, because I, I mean people that have come over here from Mexico, which right. I think you should just be able to come over. I don't, I don't believe in. I think it's ridiculous that people who want to work they should be forced to stay in this shitty patch of dirt because they right. just got a bad roll of the dice. And they were born there. I think we're just scared. The good spots like here, we're scared it's going to balance out somehow, and they're going to come over and fuck it up. We just got to figure out a way to not have it fuck it up. Just got to figure out a way to not have crime and poverty and all the, the different issues that we've just completely ignored in poor communities. Not have that affect everybody's like l- l- level of happiness that's living in these big groups. But to, just to imprison someone in a shit country because they were fucked and they were born there just seems kind of crazy and inhumane to me. Just seems weird, you know? It's pretty Eurocentric. But I think, you know, the illegals, first of all, just... You know, they're here. 
They're Americans. Yeah. We're all immigrants, you fucks. But if you counted them, I don't think they've ever, ever really counted them. I don't know how many that is. So I say 20 million plus Mexicans because that's what it is. It's like the greater LA area, which is a huge area, like goes all the way down and wide and you know it's it's such so spread out and sprawled it's something around 20 million people which is just incredible that's just a that's nutty insane. number i lived in tokyo for a while whoa when i was younger and uh, what were you doing there i was in the military i got stationed over there wow and it's like you know an island roughly the size of california with the population of the united states you know so it, you, but it was weird I, I, something you said earlier about people being crowded and I, I just went back last year and visited some friends of mine that helped me with a video project and I, and I noticed it even more so now that I'm older but I mean even on a crowded subway train where you're just jammed in like sardines or walking down the street they're so aware of uh well self-aware and then just their surroundings you know you could be crammed in this train literally nut to butt but yet nobody's touching anybody mm -hmm. you know there's just really this awareness um, and, and consideration and mutual respect that I think you don't really encounter in a lot of big cities here. It's just this, like, get the fuck out of my way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I found it um, incredibly polite. I, I've only went, I went to Tokyo once. I was like, everybody's so polite so here. So friendly. It's amazing. You, you know, that place is 20 times the size of New York City, and you could pass out in the darkest alley mm -hmm. with a $100 bill sticking out of each ear, and nobody's going to fuck with you. But there's a bunch of African dudes that are moving in there from Africa, right. like straight from Africa, these hustler guys. It's mostly Rapungi and, and some of the yeah. nightlife districts. You yeah, know, yeah. You're walking down the street and they're trying to drag you into some massage joint. And there's like, a, there's just a look about them like, oh. Some sinister shit, man. <laughs> a, a wolf got into the chicken coop. <laughs> well, it does have, there is a very dark underbelly side oh, yeah. to, to, to Tokyo for sure. Um, but you... It's hard for guys like you and me to really go find that. Well, I've had uh, Ensign Inouye on the podcast several times. He's an MMA fighter who was originally from Hawaii but lives in Japan now. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's Japanese and he's friends with all these. I mean, he fought for Pride, which was the biggest uh, MMA organization in the world at one point. They were, they were in Is Japan. That, uh K two? No, no, that's oh. that's K one. You're K1. thinking of like kickboxing? That that's a, a big event too. They had some MMA events as well. But Pride had these enormous shows where they would do like ninety thousand seat arenas. I mean, it was just gigantic. And Ensign was one of their big stars over there, and he's down with the yakuza. So he had all these crazy mm -hmm. yakuza stories. Like, whew. you know, it's, I hung out with a couple of yakuza guys once. They were uh, one of them was a bookie, and the other one, I guess, he was just like a, you know. They, you're sitting in bars and you'll be drunk, you know. And they, they all, if they once they, especially if they learn you're American or if you speak English, they, you know, they all want to talk to you and just figure out what you're about. And these guys, you know, they were drunk. We just ended up kicking it for a couple hours. Then I kind of put it together and realized what they did. Wow. And uh, they, they, they asked me and a friend of mine that was with me if we wanted to go to another club. And this guy had like this badass baby blue '67 Corvette. Um, really in just, Japan they were just young guys like flashing out you know they just wanted to impress us wow um, it, you, I, and it was weird because I could tell you they didn't really give a fuck about being friends with us they just wanted to like show us what they were all about and they were young probably really lower level guys um, and there's a lot of that but it's it's very it's very they're in one specific part of, of the city mostly Shinjuku where all the pachinko parlors and organized gambling takes place and the red light um and they, 
they make it very obvious who they are. You know what I mean? Wow. And it's an accepted part of the culture. More and more so. They've become less corrupt. Uh, the government just kind of realized we can try to fight this or we can work with them. They do a lot of things for the communities that they're in, strangely enough, you know, to kind of keep order. But then at the same time, you hear stories about some guy might owe a little too much money and they just literally go and beat him the fuck to death in a train station with baseball bats or whatever in front of people and they don't do shit about it. Whoa. There's a guy that got, there's a club owner in Rapungi that got murdered a couple of years ago and I don't think anything came of that. It's just like. It's just that's what happens. That's what happens. <sighs> Whoa. They have MMA fights between uh, gang members. They have like Yakuza <sighs> MMA fights. Yeah, what the fuck? Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a, that's a crazy warrior society. Well, they, which they is adhere to that they're so kind. Those they adhere to Budo. I mean, they, they yes. that's their whole trip is is maintaining samurai culture, and they that they despise all the westernization that happened post World War Two, and yeah, it's all about codes and honor and you know the Budo way. Yeah, Ensign Inoue, his nickname is Yamato Damashi, which is warrior spirit and this samurai spirit that everything has to be done with Yamato Damashi. Like when he would go into a, a fight, he would write notes to all his friends and his family because he thought he would die. Yeah, and big, write, write a goodbye note. All that big horror and shit. He's just ready to go to war. Yeah, man. You know that guy was, and his fights were so fucking exciting because of that. Because like he literally never worried about his own safety. He would just go in there and just try to test himself and just swing. You ever did you ever you ever read any of uh, Moria Yushiba or? The guy, the guy that founded Aikido and no, no, sensei, yeah, he he was more of a philosopher really than a um, than a martial artist. Well, he was a, absolutely a martial artist, but uh, a lot of his writings I always found more interesting. So, uh, you know, more so than the actual art. Well, that was really a strange part of samurai culture. Not not I shouldn't say strange, but unexpected. When I started investigating it or reading about it, rather, was that they were required to be balanced and it was encouraged to be a very balanced person balanced like in your discipline balanced in your artistic expression balanced in your understanding of emotions and fears it was very different than what we think of as like a warrior we think of like stone cold murderer right. conan the barbarian motherfucker just i think no. it was just at its essence pure absolute buddhism like they just live completely in that moment all the time, whatever they do, they they're they're so intensely focused, mm. and, and you know, in anything, whether it's trimming a flower or you know, it's, it's there's a very certain element to that culture that I've never seen anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I wonder how that happens. I'd like to talk to someone who's an expert in Japanese culture to explain how one society does fit into this very unusual pattern. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of it had to do with sword fighting. Well, you know, that's what I th you should be talking about, you know, because there's no, you can't second guess in a fucking sword fight. Yeah. You know? Like in every, most, you know, these samurai movies, that's all bullshit because a lot of these things were one stroke. Mm hmm. You know, you had to choose that first stroke and then, cause yeah. That's, you're cutting a man in half. So there's a, and, the, and then with, with any kind of society like that, Ido or Kendo, whatever. There's a lot of mutual respect, I would imagine, you know, because I mean, back in the day, if you, if like a peasant or somebody going to the fucking market, taking their fruit to sell, if they passed a samurai on the street and they didn't bow accordingly or just basically say good morning, they cut their fucking head off, man. 
like right there, like no questions. So, you know, imagine if like walking down the street on Santa Monica was like that today. I mean, people's behavior would be very different towards one another. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's good to no. be cutting people's heads no, off. No, I'm not saying that. I but just... I do think, I know what you're saying. I do think that when people are scared of other people in that way, or when they respect that the other person has that ability to do that to them, they're carrying a fucking sword. Like that well-armed society is a polite society argument. I don't necessarily think that's the way to go, but I do think there is an element of people that need to know that they get punched in their fucking face. Like there's a bunch of people that say rude shit to people and they say it only because they think they can because they're protected by society. And because of that, they're oftentimes less respectful than someone who would be like a physically dominant person in the conversation. Like I've seen martial artists have conversations with people where, you know, they're way, way, way more um, kind or way more considerate in the way they've voiced their concerns or opinions about something versus people that have never been in a fight in their life that will get in people's face and scream and yell and you motherfucker. And it's like, you're only doing that because this guy's not going to punch you. Right. You know, you're having this conversation because you're out in public and you know this guy's not just going to pick you up and drop you on your head. But if he wanted to, he could. Like, he shouldn't talk to people like that. Yeah, well, there's, well, yeah, there's there aren't any repercussions yes. for being an asshole. Exactly. It's only the, the repercussions are only verbal, you know, and right. they feel like if they keep it on that ground, like they can bully the bully even. They could go after them if they keep it completely verbal. If they know the guy's not going to do anything, you big fucking stupid piece of shit, you know, they can say it and they know he's not going to smash your head like a zit. As long as you're protected by society, you can get away with being pretty shitty to some people. So I don't think it's good to chop people in half with swords, but I do think it might have something to do with the reason why they're considerate. But, you know, it's weird how cultures develop in these unusual ways when they're just separated. Like the, the Japan is an island, you know, they're separated from other people. So they they've developed it. There, I mean, there's very there's similarities to other each Eastern cultures and their approach to things, mm -hmm. but they're different. You know, they have their own thing going on. Every I think every place has its own thing going on. I don't know. I, I was in I was in D.C. I guess back in April, and uh, I was trying to catch a train to go to a show. I can't remember if it was New York or Boston, and I was at the Amtrak station in D.C. And then something happened where there was a down power line, like way up north, that had taken out a lot of routes, and they they basically canceled or delayed all all the trains going out of the station. And when they put the announcement up. It just, the place fucking erupted. I mean, I've never witnessed such a self-important display of human behavior in all my life as in Washington, D.C. that day at the Amtrak station. Like, there's this line of suited, briefcased, you know, guy. They, they, they all just got right in the, in the uh, Amtrak employees' faces one at a time, like, trying to explain to them how much more important their life was than everyone else's who had just been inconvenienced, you know, sitting in this place. Right. And, I mean, it was like, I, I had to retreat into myself. It was just <laughs> it was so surrounded by it. And uh, I was just ugly. I saw, like, a pregnant lady get fucking bumped out of the way. Whoa. Some dude. Run, I mean, it's just it disgusting, man. And Wow. I don't wow. know. You would never see that in Japan. Right. People would just deal. I don't know if you'd ever see that in England, you know. I mean, 
who's to say? Is that is that just the uber successful hyper focused shithead thing that we have that other countries just don't have? Like they have the discipline, but they don't have this marauding focus thing that a lot of like American businessmen sort of embody. This idea, you just go get, get you know, this Wall Street fucking Gordon Gecko greed right. is good, you know that kind of shit. I was I would say you know Wall Street and DC places like this tend, yeah. tend to cultivate a bit more intense version of that. I was just there Saturday night. I had a great fucking time. Yeah, it's a great party town. But uh, yeah, I don't know what I mean. I don't know what happened. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It seems like it a, a weird me. place. It really did. It's a weird place. I mean, that's the Death Star. It's right there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all the world's wars are all like kind of sort of ar- organized in this weird geometrical building there. You know, yeah. so there's a thing. It's there. The, there's the penthouse, which is just outside of there, and then there's uh, the White House, which is this weird fucking building in a park where the commander in chief of the number one conquering army the world has ever known. That's where he sleeps. And everybody passes by the castle, some sort of strange mm-hmm. formation, a big circle you drive around, everybody points at it. It's a weird place to be. You ever, you ever read like the the history of the layout of the city and why it was laid yeah, out? Yeah. It's, what is the? Do you remember it? It's is, got all sorts is, of is weird- it, It's not Masonic, is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some weird Masonic implications and mm-hmm. it's all very specific in its geometry. I, this may not be true, but I, th- I think I read somewhere that they- Part of it, like why the streets are all one way, and why it's so fucking confusing to drive around DC, is that um, in case it was ever invaded, they wanted to make it difficult for whoever was coming to get from the shore into the capital. That makes sense. Um, that totally makes sense. Why? I mean, why would you like have it like so you could do an easy drive by and then just fucking get on the highway and go really fast? Yeah, you want to make it like super complicated, like a like a Alcat- What is that street? Lombard Street in San Francisco. That's what they should do. Have that shit set up. It's a cool city too. Yeah. Well, it's it's got a lot of weird history to it. It's like if you stop and think about it. Yeah. There's a website on the uh, sacred geometry and symbols of Washington D.C. Oh, and it sort of explains sacred geometry, the whole thing, like what it mimics and the different, all the different dimensions. It's freaky stuff, man. It's freaky because you know that these guys, they really were like into ancient cultures. They really were into these weird groups that they would form. I mean, this, that skull and bones shit, that's not fake. That's, yeah, that's That's weird. real. That's fucking weird. Man. That's real. I mean, they really are a part of all this stuff. Were they in the pine cones? I don't know if they were in the pine cones. I know that's the, that was a big thing in a, a lot of ancient Catholic art. Right. Oh, there's giant pine cones outside the Vatican. Yeah. Carve, yeah. Yeah, the pine cone supposedly represents the pineal gland, mm-hmm. which is the seed of the soul in ancient Egypt, and which is where now they've actually proven that DMT is made. It's pretty speculative until real recently. At least but, in rodents, right? Yes. Which, I mean, it's a mammal. So yeah. Rick Strassman um, and that group that he's involved with, the uh, Cottonwood Research Foundation, they put it together. And just getting in a live rodent, being able to prove that this third eye in the middle of your head uh, actually is producing psychedelic chemicals, pretty fucking crazy. And the people that knew that, they designed the White House, designed all that shit. Oh, yeah. So, sort of, probably. They were probably copying people who knew it, probably didn't even know why. They had buckets of that shit. Man. Do you think they had DMT back when they were building like the, the White House? I mean, it was here. Um, but was it? 
You know, they didn't was, even find was out first, about ayahuasca. Was it first synthesized? That's a good question. Um, I think ayahuasca was discovered by Western civilization in the 1850s. Okay. And I think it was, uh, I think they figured out what was in it when they were isolating the alkaloids in it. And they, they originally wanted to call it telepathine, the alkaloid they isolated. But then they found out that it was already isolated as a, the compound harmine. And that's in, um, that's in the plant that is connected to ayahuasca that has the MAO inhibitor. Right. So this is like, this is all like the early 1900s, 18, late 1800s, early 1900s. How did 1900s. they figure that shit? How do they know what plants to boil together in order to deactivate and how they the know enzyme. for thousands yeah, of how'd years they know? yeah how'd they figure it out it's not an easy process i mean how many species of plants can there be in the amazon you know what i mean how did they, and they found the right two well what's fucked up is that oh there's hundreds of thousands right. of different plants they found uh not just the right two but they they found out how to do it in this weird way where you have to mash up the vines and you add in the leaves and you boil it down and it's it's a very involved process that takes hours to make true ayahuasca but nobody knows how they did it they say that the plants told them how to do it mm -hmm. which is just a good explanation as anything i accept that if you're high on mushrooms plants will tell you some shit i've had conversations with traffic signals you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> uh, Imagine if everything really was alive. We just couldn't tune into it, you know? I mean, if your your table really was alive, and your table really had consciousness, it just, just just sits there. Its consciousness is very different than ours. It's not, it's not important for it to move. It just is where it is. If you chop it up, it doesn't freak it out, but it has some sort of a feel to it. That's interesting. I, I mean... Yeah. Obviously, it's not provable. No, but, but that Rupert Sheldrake guy who was on before, Rupert, who was on uh, a couple weeks ago, he thinks that everything has a memory. He thinks that objects contain a memory, and that that's why like people don't want to live in a house where someone's been killed. Like you walk in, you have a weird right. feeling. I've you know, they say one of the one of the more common side effects of high dose psilocybin is that inanimate objects tend to develop personalities or kind of perceive them as much more characterized than normally but yeah it's all condensed matter you know right so who, who fuck knows man <laughs> right yeah well who who does that's that's another part of the whole what is what is a thing what is an object that really fucks with your head when you start thinking about the fact that most atoms like it's all it's mostly space like there's all this or dark space yeah there's all this stuff in there where it's undefined like there's a lot a lot of a lot of nothing and it's all just sort of somehow or another cohesive and becomes a table. It's like energy condensed to a very slow vibration, right? Yeah. That's the Hicks line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here's it, Tom with the weather. All of it sounds bizarre. The, the, just the idea that atoms, we, we're trying to figure out what subatomic particles are and that there's these particles inside atoms. Like, we, we don't know what the fuck is going on with all those things. Like, what are all those Have you followed things? this hydrogen collider thing? Which one? The the Higgs boson. Yes. It's just fat. I mean, I don't know. that. That's the kind of stuff I was tripping out on when the record got written. I mean, just like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't pretend to understand it. I'm definitely a hobbyist, but it's, it's I'm fascinated by, like, string theory and, yeah. you know, the concept of uh, independent, freestanding, dimensional realms of energy that all kind of hold one another together. Oh, I'm fascinated that someone's mind is so 
not just so tuned in to how the nature of the universe works, but so tuned in that they've taken this theoretical particle and made it the subject of this gigantic science project that involves hundreds of different fucking countries. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's like a hundred different countries, over 10,000 different scientists, something like that. The, the photo gallery of the, of the actual facility it's is insane. one of the most insane things I've ever seen. Like, the, some, the amount of time and years it took them to build this thing is just... It's incredible. Yeah, I don't even want to know what the price tag looked like. It's billions. Billions of dollars. And it's all to collide particles so that they can Finally produce... God particle. Yeah, this Higgs boson particle. It's amazing. Point of origin... Well, they also found that quark gluon plasma, I think it is, which is like supposedly the heaviest matter that they've ever discovered. Let me, let me pull that up. It's some insane amount of weight these things have. That That's something that was figured out. Yeah, quark gluon plasma weight. It's just insanely dense. The densest matter created ever. Um, that they, they figured this out, that it is, is actually a real thing when they uh, were doing some of the experiments. The exotic material is more than 100,000 times hotter than the inside of the sun and is denser than a neutron star. Wrap your fucking head around that. It acts like a perfect liquid. Can we see it? Uh, I think they can, but very brief. You know, it's like you're, you're seeing it almost in a calculation. It's dark. Yeah. Or- By triggering hundreds of... I, mean, I think it's so heavy... That if you had a piece of it, like like that you could look at, like a marble, it would probably sink through to the center of the universe. I mean, just go right through your fucking, right through the, I mean, I don't like know. alien spit. It would probably go to the center <laughs> of the planet and just hang out there. Yeah, alien spit. Burn through the fucking core. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it's supposed to be unbelievably heavy. Like, more, like, I could give you the numbers if I could find it, but I think it's one of those things where you can't even, you can't even imagine. It doesn't make any sense. And that's something that they figured out is actually well, I, real. I, I mean, if they're if there's they're looking for the point of origin, right? Like they're looking for the God particle or whatever, whatever caused the Big Bang, or you know, there's a there's this Jesuit priest Pierre Taylor de Chardin. He wrote a lot of really weird, controversial things, but um, I think he actually got blackballed by the Vatican in the early 20th century. But he, uh, you ever read this book, The Phenomenon of Man? Where he talks about the Omega Point. The no, the origin, like the the, the 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 first point of all complex consciousness, or the, the the source of the universe that like emanated everything that we know and that ever has been into existence. And he he was basically trying to sh- to establish a symbiotic relationship between science and religion and evolution and spirituality, which is wasn't a very popular opinion in the in the Vatican in, in you know the 1920s and. Uh, he he had this theory that it all emanated from this one point or the omega point and that eventually consciousness will reach a state of complexity that's so advanced that it will no longer require a physical vessel or a, or a human body or anything to inhabit itself and then it will it will keep evolving until it returns back to the highest state of complexity which can only be the same place it came from because whatever started it had to be the source of this true divine whatever so once it goes back, you know, but basically, you know, the reality as we perceive it, and this is according with a lot of modern quantum physics, it's just this manifestation that we sort of project out to convince ourselves that we're not actually consciousness experiencing itself. 
if that makes sense. Like, you know, we're not little special flowers and individuals. We're all literally the same thing. People are pulling their car over to the side of the road right now, jumping out and running into the woods. Yeah. They don't know. You just scare the shit out of people. It's all going to... Well, it... If the universe is fourteen point whatever billion years old, like they say, I didn't. I, it's not. I didn't. It's not my idea. That, no, it's know, a yeah. great idea. Yeah. What I'm saying is, what? Why wouldn't it be? You know, who knows what? It might be fucking a hundred billion times older than that. Like, it might no not have any age. It might just be a constant cycle of that happening, down to a compressed tiny spot, smaller than the head of a pin. The entire universe, and then boom. Big Bang over and over and over again. It might just happen. It might just compress. I mean, just over the course of who knows how many billions of years and just continually do that. If it happened once, like, why Why would we think that it's only, like, it's a one-time sale? Well, it's they, fucking, they don't, they don't sell, think it. Sell, sell, sell. The Big Bang is right. headed your way. Well, it's just this one little Big Bang. And it's just pockets of infinity stacked upon each other, you know. Listen to this shit. I found, I found out what the weight of this stuff is. This is going to fuck your head up. One cubic centimeter of this quark-gluon plasma weighs 40 billion tons. What? It's pretty dense. What the fuck? How much is that? What is 40 billion tons? Times 2,000. Fuck. I don't know. I don't... Well, it's times... A ton is 2,000 pounds, right? 40 billion times 2,000, so... What is that? I mean, what is a, a skyscraper weigh 40 billion tons? I mean, what, Does it? What the fuck weighs 40 billion tons? I don't know. What, I don't even think. Do you think a skyscraper weighs 40 billion tons? That's insane. And that's a cubic centimeter. So if you like threw that at somebody, they're not catching it. You'd be wrecking house, man. <laughs> Just go right through your hand. <laughs> Boom. Right through the center of the earth. A fucking They'll figure cubic out a way centimeter. To weaponize it if they found it. And a centimeter is tiny. We don't use those little bitchy-ass little me- units of measurement in my America, but that's a little tiny fucking thing. It's about that big, right? It's tiny. Cubic centimeter, 40 billion tons. If if there was a Big Bang, why wouldn't we think that there could be an infinite number of Big Bangs? An infinite number of expansions and contractions, and maybe what we are currently, and we like to think of as the highest state of life available, what we are is just this is what exists when you have this state of the universe mm-hmm. and there's a type of consciousness that exists when the universe becomes no longer physical and that might be what you're experiencing when you smoke dmt you might be experiencing these other forms of reality that are there you just don't tune into them while you're in this state oh, and that you can access them through these chemical doorways while you're sleeping while you're meditating when you you reach these different tunes of mind that people have been exercising and having a, a, these disciplined practices to try to reach these frequencies. They've been doing it forever. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it because they were, well, I know I'm starving to death, but I want to try to figure out a way to reach some shit that's not even real. Yeah. No, they were, they were doing it because they had had success in it in some way or another. Just changing the channel, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Possibly. You know? Possibly. I've so. never... I've never uh, Weirdly, my experience is very limited. With I've only encountered it twice, and I've I don't, I've never had I guess what you call a breakthrough. What have you had when you've done it? Uh, it was like, well, the first time I don't I I didn't know what I was doing, and it the bubbling it was just like weird everything just some weird associations that kind of freaked me out, and I was like, like there's no way this can be healthy. But then the second time I got like this extreme, 
I don't know how to describe it other than say it was an intense downward shift in gravity, what felt like gravity. Or, you know, that crest at the top of the first hill on a roller coaster where everything just kind of... Mm-hmm. I felt like something was like pushing me down. Um, and then, I, you know, I'd read so much and researched so much. Uh, m- most of my understanding came from reading and, and how that tied together with other experiences that I've had or how that related to, to things that I've always been fascinated with or... or subscribe to maybe on a personal notion but uh it it felt like something putting you almost in a again a trance you know but i was still very much aware i was i I, you know i don't think i got a very strong dose were you taking regular dmt or five meo dmt the nn nn yeah and you so you didn't have any visuals oh i did no i had some visuals but it was i wouldn't say that it was uh it was probably as intense as the strongest psilocybin trip i've ever had but i was still very much i never lost cognitive thought i was aware i was in my body I could open my eyes i was still i knew i was in the room right right i right. saw um almost like these easter island head sort of things sort of just kind of coming out of the oh, void okay. with chasers and and it felt like something one and i just it was like the cusp of something and it just it was kind of over and there was a the room definitely looked, there was an, a weird energy, like everything had this crystalline sort of melty effect. But I, I mean, it wasn't overwhelming. Certainly not anything like what I, what they've described, like some of the research volunteers talked about. And the volunteers are doing it slightly differently because they were doing... Yeah. The intravenous is supposed to be a motherfucker. Actually, I, t- I, was, I got to visit with Dr. Strassman about five days ago. Yeah. So it, um, he answered a lot of questions. And, and went more into detail, but yeah, they were like massive doses, man. Yeah, and four like four in a row would be four eighty to one hundred and twenty milligram doses all in one morning, back to back. And yeah, um, they're hitting hard. Just <laughs> yeah, there's no resisting it at that no. point. Yeah, my, think- my my knowledge is from a purely amateur academia, mm. so and incorporating that into certain other things was like you know how it may or may not resemble elements of Tibetan Buddhism. And what people describe, like these, like the bardos and independent realms of energy, and where your soul is faced with these entities that test you in ways, and how you react to those determine how you might transmigrate right. or reincarnate into another life. And I, I didn't even know about it until a year ago, man. I was sitting on, I was visiting a buddy of mine that was in town, and uh, and it was just really strange because I've listened to your podcast off and on for a while, and I, I used to listen to a lot of Terrence lectures, and for whatever reason, it just never. I never heard about it, or maybe it passed in front of me when I was younger, and I didn't know what it was, and just said no because I related it to like a PCP or something. Right, get that shit away. And uh, but yeah, I was, I was sitting at a friend of mine's house, and his his father—I can't remember if his father had already passed, or if he was just—he'd he'd gotten very ill with terminal cancer, and um, he was pretty distraught about. It. And we were just hanging out, and he was kind of telling me everything he'd been dealing with, and I, you know, I didn't know what to really say or to to comfort him, you know, because he's obviously. You know, you find out your dad's dying. Right. Fucks you up. You know? Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, I just was like, well, you know, man, there, some people think that there's no such thing as death. And, you know, you live to die and we die so we can really live. And, uh, you know, like the Buddhists think that there's this other realm you go to that's just the most pure bliss and like this ocean of love. And you, and you feel that joy and euphoria and either go on to nirvana or you go back into another life, depending on how you live this one. And he's like, man, that sounds a lot like DMT. And I was like, what the fuck is DMT? And uh, he's like, really, man? You come on, Star Wars, you of all people, you know? I was like, I'd never, just I didn't have a clue. And he pay, he played an excerpt 
right there on the porch from one of your podcasts where you kind of gone on this rant about it. I'm like, all right, I need to dig in here because I'm seeing a lot of similarities and symbiotic touchstones. And I went home and, man, I probably spent the next three months just reading everything I could find and, like, scouring forums and, and, and then going back and reading metaphysical publications and a lot of theology and bouncing this shit around. And then I found out my wife was going to have a child. And it just was like my last great existentialistic dilemma, you know what I mean? So I was like, I'm going to write a record about all this shit uh, and uh, record it like it was in outer space. And then Dave and I just kind of wanted to tackle it from a standpoint in terms of the mix. of I wanted it to sound like a lot of my favorite records did that I used to listen to when I was high out of my fucking mind on mushrooms or dextromethorphan or anything else, you know. And you can do all that with tape. I think, and like we were talking about vinyl earlier, it's mm -hmm. settled. So when you put the headphones on, you want it to kind of just figure eight around your head, you know. And you could do that with tape better than you can digitally. It's a lot of people will say no, but I think it the 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 end result is a much better um, texture, for lack of a better term. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I don't know. It's hard, to, it's hard to explain, but the, the, the digital manipulation with computers, that you, what you can do with music now, it's pretty incredible, but it's, e it's so easy to overdo it. Right. And then you lose that human Quality of the, the actual yeah. sound of the instrument yeah. itself. You want uh, everything, I think, to a certain degree has to be understated. Yeah, isn't there like, there's something really cool about hearing the pick moving across the guitar when you mm. know that that's what you're hearing? Yeah. It, it gives you this certain strange connection and and then instead if that was like cleaned up and this perfect sound this perfect synthesized sound, i mean it's still a cool thing but it's missing out on whatever whatever makes whatever that unique feeling that you get from someone's art is you know when you see someone like david cho was here the other day and he had some paintings and just seeing his paintings and knowing him like, is amazing yeah and it's like you're getting his unique art it's very uniquely his and you, that's what's missing with all this Pro Tools shit, right? Well, you get perspective. Yeah. And I mean, with any real art, I think you, you just kind of, it's somebody, you know, that's what you do. You observe and you assimilate and then you put out your perception of this thing in hopefully a way that everybody can relate to. You know, you're kind of putting the unspeakable in, into a visual, you know what I mean? If that makes sense. Sort of, and what do you th what do you think about people that make like electronic music, like that kind of shit? You know what, man, I love a lot of that shit. I think I think anything, any good music is soul music, and you can put soul into anything. Like somebody mm -hmm. really put a lot of time into sequencing all that shit out. And there's a lot of crap, just like anything else, you know. Just like anything else. Um, but I, I dare anybody to go stand in front of a a Skrillex concert and tell me that that's not bad. The fuck ass, you know right? What I mean? Yeah. So exactly. Yeah, I can I can listen and appreciate anything as long as it's done from a, a and you can tell when it's not. I mean, it's like but isn't that a good else. thing about today? We were, we were talking earlier about how if you had a record deal in the nineteen seventies, you had to be a bad motherfucker. You had to be. You had to be. But isn't it better that it's more accessible today? Well, you'll get more quantity and you'll get a lot of shitheads, but you're also the quality will s slip through too. Do you think? No, I don't. I, really I, I, don't, I don't think it's a good thing at all because now people have to sift through a lot of mediocre bullshit to find the real stuff. But they found you, so if someone finds you, you could get spread pretty quick now. Yeah, but it it, be it became at some point it became this thing where 
you know everybody wants to wants to be in a band at some point you know right. and whether it's um and excuse me a lot of hey. people now hey coffee man bulletproof uh <laughs> it feels to me like there's a, there's an element of it where a lot of people think that playing music for a living is is a right it's just something you can decide to go do right you know what i mean and like oh i'm gonna put a kickstarter campaign up because we need a new van to tour in so give me some money so i can go tour and play music fuck you man right you know Get out there and earn it. Right. Because even though, I mean, I got a wife that I love and a, a four-month-old son that I've seen exactly like 12 days of his life, and I spend all the time in a van with three or four stinky other dudes going out and playing to a bunch of drunk strangers, and it's still the greatest fucking job on the planet, you know? And if it never went anywhere beyond where it is right now for me, I've, I feel like I've just basically clawed my way to the beginning, as it were. Um, and if we're playing clubs to three or 500 people, I mean, I can, I can make a living at some point doing that. And it's, I'm not compromising in any way. I don't have to wake up and like report to anybody. I'm not sitting in fucking meetings for a week about what my haircut should look like, you know? (laughs) And I just feel like there's a lot of people like you see, and you used to see back in club dates and, and you just, you can tell like the blatant blinding narcissism that permeates this industry where People literally almost come to fucking fist fights over who's going to play what set spot at this rinky-dink club that nobody gives a shit about just because they think there's going to be somebody there that's going to recognize my genius and that's going to change everything. And I think you get a lot of entitlement because of that. Um, and that's, to me, probably the worst aspect of, of working in in the music business is entitled mm. musicians. Yeah, well... Everybody comes at it from a different place, and everybody, I'm I'm talking about sort of all aspects of show business, and everybody handles their own needs in a different way. Like Some people go in less needy. Some people are just completely obsessed with the idea of success, and it just like permeates every cell of their body. That's the end goal as opposed to the actual art. Yeah. 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 You can hear that shit really pretty easy but what that's why people go crazy when that shit slips through though right when that stuff works well it's always worked i mean it's not a new concept pop music's been around since the the very first days of the music business that's what it was all about but there's good pop music too right absolutely yeah yeah that's what's weird about it right it's all just a good song is a good song yeah i I don't know it's a you can go crazy thinking about it so i try not to so is it necessary that you live in Nashville? No, it's not at all. Not I, at all. I thought it would be. And it, well, in the beginning it was because you have to be playing in those clubs, which are some of the most thankless clubs in the entire nation. Like you can't make money playing in Nashville. It's just kind of, it's where you go to find people that can help you. Really? Um, and I've been very fortunate in that regard where I, I, I was found sort of by the, maybe the handful of actually trustworthy folks in town. Um, I mean, my manager never took a dollar from me for the first three years. He was just kind of like a friend that gave me solid advice and told me what not to do because he'd watch guys like me get chewed up and spit out for 20 years, you know. Right. He, just, he was almost retired, basically, and uh, he just said, I'll help you, and if it turns into a gig, I want the gig. He was like, all right, man, you got a deal. And just kind of like put this wall up between a lot of that shit that tap that happens to a lot of people and they you know get taken advantage of and you end up bitter as a result and your creativity suffers right um so i just decided well if i just don't have anything to do with any of that then that can't ever happen so now four years later you know i have a great booking agent i have a manager 
and and these people that kind of help facilitate us getting out and playing shows on the road. And I, I mean, I could start a tour from anywhere. So my wife and I talked about that, and I was like, "Why do we even still live here? Because we don't go out, you know." <coughs> yeah, it's like a, the Hollywood thing too, right? There's a lot of people that are comics and are on the road all the time. And they still live here, but you could practice here. Do you need a place to practice? Well, can you you could practice in a, a studio, right? What do you mean, like rehearsals? Yeah, but oh, you we don't, don't. We need, never rehearse. You never rehearse. Yeah, we got a very small, compact band. We we've been doing this. In the beginning, we rehearsed every day for like six months to get the chemistry there. But now the shows are basically I mean, every show is different. It's very dynamic, and um, we like to keep it lean because of that. You can, it's the freedom you can kind of just go here or there, right? And it, everything's just sort of an extension of my acoustic guitar. So you kind of just we never write set lists, really. Yeah, just kind of feel the audience, feel the room, and, and try to just maintain focus on dynamics. So when you create new songs. Um, do you write them together? Do you write them yourself and then bring it to them? And yeah, you, you, I always write them myself. And typically, I don't like to play songs I haven't recorded. So uh, I get in the studio and formulate it and then get it down and committed, and then they they kind of tend to come to life all on their own over the course of a year and a half. You know, you end up at the end of a tour, that song sounds nothing like the one you put down on tape. Why is that? You just you get bored, so you push things and go in different places and try you know you try to just keep it exciting and take risks and and it makes you a better musician you know obviously eight months later from the time you recorded that song if you've been playing every night for two hours if you haven't become a better musician by that time then you're doing this for the wrong reasons so now when you go in to make your next record ideally <coughs> you know you've trained harder right right so you will uh, change like the rhythm. You'll, you will, will you add lines to songs? Only when I forget the other ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> Does that happen? Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, all the time. But nobody can really understand what the hell I'm saying anyway. So I can just <laughs> fake my way, th slur through it, and they don't—they're none the wiser. Um, Would you ever consider doing like a residency somewhere, like a Vegas type thing, where people always came to you? Oh, would Ma you think that you always have to tour? That's the kind of thing you do when your career's over. Not is that what it is? Just getting started, I think. I know, but I always wondered, like, man, <clears> the trap. We were talking when you got here. You were beat because of traveling, and I'm beat because of traveling. I was just, tra and I was only traveling for two days. You know, just the flying back and forth from Philly to DC, LA to Philly, Philly to DC, DC to LA. And do that in two days, and you're just like, ugh. If you could just stay put, if they could all come to you. I, I is that possible? Um, you know, I mean, I, or as part of the gig, like the travel and the stuff that sucks and being away is. from your family. That's that's well, that's where you you know musicians play music, and that's where you become a musician. I mean, you know, rule ten thousands and all that. But mm -hmm. it's so truthfully for me, man, it's really bittersweet everything that's happening right now because I've been like I said for off and on for a, a lot of different reasons that i've put it down over the years but i've been doing this a long time and at a very thankless capacity so it's all just been very passion driven and then now you know i've got a newborn son and uh everything's happening and i'm just i'm just slammed so much that i'm exhausted a lot of times and uh it, it's really weird because i'm out here and all this stuff we've worked so hard for has finally happened but a lot of days i just really want to be at home right um 
That's maybe, the catch twenty two, right? Yeah, that's the catch twenty two. That's what I get for for starting at thirty four. You know, um, <laughs> that's what you get for being successful too. Now you're busy. If you weren't, you'd wish you were busy. I wish I wish I was on the yeah, I'd be sitting on the couch wishing I had a gig. Yeah. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're way better off with this damned. Yes. The I damned agree. if you do is way better than damned if you don't. I just I just miss my family a lot. Of course. Can you take them on the road with you? Ideally that's the goal. Right. But you know that it, certain other things I got to take care of the band I got to take mm-hmm. care of the crew you know a lot of there's a lot of you don't really make money touring it's no? just it's just how you build awareness wow what a pain in the ass so if you don't make money touring how do you make money that's a good question Joe Rogan <laughs> <laughs> because album sales are yeah. a real issue now you can, right? it's so funny because people that you know back home that I, that I haven't talked to since I was in high school and you know, all of a sudden, you start getting texts from unknown numbers and shit, and people you haven't talked to, and they're like, "Man, you fucking made it, man!" It's like I'm just blowing it up. It's like they think because you get some press in in ten or twelve media outlets that you're just raking in the dough, and that's just not the reality. Making records is fucking expensive. Packaging records is expensive, like especially. I wanted to put out vinyl. That barely pays for itself. Yeah, we know? never got into how much the first one cost. We sort the, of started oh, it, but yeah. we never. Uh, the first one because that, because of some of the guys we used on the session, doing like, like the pig, the pig, and the guy named Robbie Turner. He used to play steel for Waylon and another guy. Wow, some really serious. He used to heavy play hitter. steel for Waylon. Man, so they they gotta drink whiskey. Yeah, well, there was this dream come true <laughs> scenario where this investor came into the picture and was going to help out and and blah blah blah, and then at the last minute, it all you know went away. Well. Um, due to negotiations so then i got stuck with the bill on this record that i thought i was going to have help making and it was all about all of a sudden done about 27 grand that i didn't have wow so spent that year on the road playing and then trying to pay that debt off and then about a year later once we're coming back off tour we're about five grand in the black and i just spent all this time on the road with this with this young band i'd put together working out all these songs and just decide all right well Let's just go make the make a record. Wow! And it has to be quick because we don't have the cash, you know. Um, right. So I paid the guys in the band a thousand bucks, and then the other thousand went towards paying the engineers and, and my buddy Dave, the producer, just kind of did it for free on spec to help out. And, wow! Um, and so all I think the whole thing cost about forty five hundred bucks, and uh, which was just very very inexpensive to make an album. And that, and now this record that sort of started, I guess what we'll call the beginning of a career. If I'd have taken that in and tried to shop it to anybody, you know, any any major label or music row entity or even a lot of indie labels, and had laid that down. One, it's a country record. Two, I'm talking about reptile aliens and fucking <laughs> turtles and shit, man. You know exactly as well as I do how that would have gone. Yeah. You know. What's the turtle thing? What's that's a that's a a jocular expression. I got it from a Stephen Hawking book. Um, it's it's a it's like an old comedic reference to the infinite regress problem in cosmology, which you know the, the basically all the shit we were talking about earlier. And there's a story. I guess there was some professor at Oxford somewhere giving a speech and explaining how the universe works and 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 and. and everything else and some little lady stood up and said you know that's really clever i know you think you're smart but but you're wrong and uh, he's like oh yeah well what's what's the, what's the truth and she's like well the earth sits on the back of this giant cosmic turtle and he carries it through space 
And he said, well, what's carrying the turtle? And she's like, oh, that's very clever, but it's another turtle. And he's like, well, what's under that? She's like, you might as well, you're wasting your time. It's turtles all the way down. And so Hawking referenced this in Brief History of Time. And it's weird because you can look back, um, Hindu, Hindu cosmology and a lot of, uh, some Native American tribes, they all held these like earthly turtles in high reverence and the symbology of it all. And you find that story in different cultures throughout you know space but thousands of years but there's this weird weird reference to this cosmic turtle and uh, the, the indians or the hindus thought there were these four elephants standing on the back of the turtle and the earth was a flat disc resting on its back whoa and it just cruised through space there's a lot of artwork you can find associated to this and i just thought that it was really the the, the record at its core is about love you know being like this one universal truth you could, a lot of people look to religion, a lot of people look to drugs, and I'm not saying you can't get really spiritual experiences from all of those things, but I think love at the end of the day is the one thing that really I've ever found forced me to want to wake up and really try to be a better human being every day, you know. So that was the main point of the, of the album, and the Turtles thing was just kind of, it's, it's a way of saying, if you get into an argument with somebody, and you realize it's just pointless and you're going back and forth the turtles all the way down because like right. no, nobody really knows shit you know and we're all just trying to not kill each other so i don't know i, I decided it would make a good country song well that's a fascinating uh theory on her part i mean what did she mean look at that there's a picture of the earth with turtles below it <laughs> who who did that jamie no idea uh, hollingsworth steven what a bizarre there's a idea. There's some really, really cool visual. What a bizarre idea. I mean, why, why turtles? Why, what was, well, what was she trying to say? Turtles are the oldest known living species on the planet. They, they predate, are they really? They predate crocodiles and you know, really? other reptile species. Um, and they, the 13 symmetrical, the design of the shells a lot of like ancient indian tribes thought that that was in connection with the 13 lunar cycles and Whoa. um it's just an ancient creature they live a long time they're very independent self-sufficient they carry their homes on their back so they thought of them this really like wise old you know plus the pineal gland you know if you cut that shit open there's a little third eyeball sitting in there some of them even have like a translucent layer to the right. top of their skull where the pineal gland sits i used to have turtles for pets Really? Had to get rid of them. My wife got pregnant. Salmonella? Well, they're just dangerous. They're dirty, stinky yeah. little fuckers. <laughs> you know, they they will give off some fucking serious poop disease. You got to mm -hmm. really, they're very messy. Yeah. And I would feed them goldfish. They're not really meant for domestication, but they're sure cool. They're the, I had, I had piranhas at one point in time, allegedly, since they're illegal, say allegedly. Uh, and watching piranhas eat is not nearly as cool as watching turtles eat. Turtles are a motherfucker, dude. Really fucking cool. They grab goldfish and just bite them in half. Just grab them <clears> with their <throat> paws. It's like watching dinosaurs eat. And they swim after the goldfish. They're fucking predatory, man. Like, I always thought of turtles as being like this sort of slow-moving thing that really didn't fuck with anybody. <laughs> no, no. Hungry turtles in a fish tank and some goldfish. And you just have an orgy of slaughter. I mean, they're wild to you watch. Imagine man. back in the, when they were like, you know, turtles the size of fucking school buses. Yeah, around, you know, where the, is that? How big they were I, at one point? I guess. In I mean, everything else was huge. If, I mean, yeah, I've, I've never had that adequately explained to me why everything was so fucking big, and why the species that lasted diminished through evolution. 
like crocodiles used to be like 70 80 foot crocodiles you know yeah it was a different species of crocodile but yeah the ones that are out now though they've been around for hundreds of millions of years so that means the ones around now survived the thing that hit the yucatan which is like what okay sharks did too right sharks have been around in this state for more than 100 million years yeah i don't get it it's amazing that those things are around though we get a chance to look at an animal that would have walked freely amongst the dinosaurs when you see a crocodile you're essentially seeing a prehistoric beast yeah crazy prehistoric thing covered in armor waddles around takes gazelles out just looking for shit to kill oh disgusting fucking monsters That'd they make a hell of a pair of shoes, though. Get yourself a couple of nice Croc shoes. Ooh, polish them bitches up nice. Gators. Yeah. Alligators are, uh, I mean, at one point in time, they were really extinct or uh, on the verge of extinction. They were really endangered. That's when I lived in Florida. We used to feed them. We used to throw marshmallows into this place called Lake Alice, and they would come up and snatch up the marshmallows. And I never would have thought that they would get so plentiful that they would start hunting them. But now they try, they're trying to kill as many alligators as they mm. can. They just can't keep up with them. I took one of those fan boat tours down in New Orleans one time. Where oh, you, did you? go out with like some dude with three teeth and he <laughs> jumps on the lily pond and starts smacking these alligators in the head and shit. And, uh, <laughs> but at the end of it, he had this little baby alligator in a cooler on the boat, just, just torturing the shit out of this poor animal, you know, and, and uh, they pass it around. And there's like 14 people on this pontoon out touring the swamp and everybody gets a chance to hold this little baby alligator. So you might, it's probably scared shitless. It's all these weird hormones. And, and so I'm the fucking very last person to get this thing, dude. And I swear to God, as soon as they, my wife hands it to me, it just pissed all over me. And because you're holding by the tail and it's just this, this fire hydrant of, of urine just misting out all over me, man. I'm just like, this was not meant to happen. No, it was meant to happen. You're the chosen one. Right. It was holding in its pee. It's like, I'm going to get the Sturgill. I'm gonna anoint him with my. I'm gonna anoint him. Yeah. I'm gonna let him know he's the chosen one. It trusted you because you were probably the only one that wouldn't smash its skull open if it pissed all over him. I mean, it was nothing to do. I just kind of had to he hold it and let him just, finish. Was know? its uh, mouth taped up? Yeah, he had like a big rubber band on it. Yeah, we had a, an alligator on Fear Factor once had a mouth taped up too. Fuck that, man. <laughs> yeah, this guy he jumps out <laughs> on this little grass pond and you just see. Like eight of them in succession come out of nowhere and start swimming towards him. They all oh. jump up. You know, he understands the behaviorism, the sight line, but I'm just, and this guy had this massive scar on his bald head and literally three teeth in his head. And he's like, nabba dim dump dim. You know, <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm going to watch this guy die. Well, how'd they get the scar? Did now get a I, I, I don't know. I never, how'd you not ask? I, man, I, did, I wanted to engage as little as possible, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I would have had to ask, I think. Yeah, I would have had to ask. This guy fucks with alligators, and he's got an alligator-sized bite on his head. Well, he, he might—I I was afraid he might have been like a veteran. It almost had like—it oh, like okay. was like a giant scar that went from the back of his neck over his skull. Oh, um, so I didn't want to. Right, impose. where'd you get the scar, man? Yeah, how'd that happen? Lost all my friends. <laughs> yeah, we go on a boat ride. Yeah, yeah. I only have shaky memories of it, but every night in the middle of the night, I hear the guns. I hear the explosions. That's fucked up. Yeah. You ever watch that show, Swamp People, where they make a living just mm -hmm. killing alligators? I know what you're talking about. Hun they have hundreds of alligator tags. They'll get like a hundred tags, 
and they have to they can kill 100 alligators in a season that's how many fucking alligators there are they're just selling the skins what are they doing for yeah them? yeah they sell the skins and the meat too the meat is delicious apparently it's the highest pro- amount of protein it's got more protein per ounce of uh of alligator meat than i think like any animal i've tried it a couple times it's really chewy Couldn't i think it's how it. you how you prepare it hmm. i would like to try it fresh i've only tried it deep fried like in batter and it was you know it was forgettable but apparently, if you get a fresh alligator and someone's a good chef and they understand how to cook it, they can. It's really delicious. Hmm. But it's one of those things like a lot of wild game um, gets real tricky because there's no fat. I think alligator is probably very similar. You ever I, rattlesnake? Yeah, I've had rattlesnake That's really before. Good. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, Guess inquired too. I liked it. I just yeah. Flashed it in some butter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, did you cook it yourself? No, my uncle cooked it. Oh wow. Yeah, he's one of those pilgrim motherfuckers that just that's a chewy you know, chewy yeah, meat it's pretty too chewy. It is, but a really distinct flavor yeah the wild game tends to be very uh difficult to cook right if you cook it too much you, you fuck it up you know you have to like really be careful i bet alligators probably similar in that way i tasted uh i worked with a guy in the yard Corey's a big hunter and he would you know bow hunting and uh he, he moved up to wyoming because he could get like four or six more tags a year than he could in utah and he'd drive that hour and a half every day even like through, wow through the winter blizzards to come to this job just so he could the kid was just eat up with it man but he, he apparently he set i think the longest distance shot in wyoming at 23 and then he'd hunt moose and elk and everything else with a bow but he would cut in he'd bring in these venison like filet cutlet medallions of elk meat, and we had a grill down at the switch shack, and he cooked that shit. It was the best fucking thing I've ever tasted in my life. Elk is hard to go back to eating ground beef after tasting that, you know. Yeah, elk is it. so good for you, man. Yeah. You just taste it in the meat that it's good for you. You're like, whoa. Apparently, moose is like that, too. I never ate moose before, but it's supposed to be unbelievably good. Like, you eat it, and you just go, my God. I'm sort of in awe. Of those people that, that want to get 40 feet from a moose with a bow and arrow. That's pretty fucking hardcore. Man. 40 yards. 40, 40 yards. feet is fucking pushing it. I mean, the, you 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 better hit it right. You, I mean, I'm sure it's happened. I'm sure someone's been 40 feet, but you know how close oh, 40 just, feet is? I don't have any idea, yeah. 40 feet is where the bathroom that's, is. That's the pisser, yeah. You could do it. I mean, it could happen. But goddamn. The fact that the moose hasn't run away or charged you or you have to call them in. You have to pretend you, you're pussy. Oh, what's up? Trying to get some over here. And then he comes, <laughs> comes waddling through all 1,500 pounds of them. like a bull. Oh, it's a giant animal. I've seen them in, in, in real mean life. they're mean shit, right? I mean, like, well, they're, they're, I wouldn't say they're mean. They're defensive and aggressive. Like a mother and a calf. You don't ever want to run into that. I was with a mother and a calf on an island. We uh, took a boat out to an island. Uh, me and Ari and uh, this guy Matt, who's a guide up in Alaska, took a salmon fishing at Valley River Charters. We pulled up uh, onto this uh, island, and there was a moose, a mama moose there with her calf, and we were no more than 30 yards away from her. It was real touch and go. Like, I was looking at this moose, and, and she was looking at us like, oh, for real? Like, you motherfuckers are just going to pull up onto this island? I'm on the island with my baby. It wasn't a big island either. But his dad uh, owns the island, and he has, like, a resort, like, a camp set up, like, for fishermen and hunters on this island. And so there's, like, these cabins and shit there and generators and stuff, and the moose is just hanging out there, just keeping a good eye on us. But it's such a big fucking animal. It's a horse, a a horse-sized animal. 
and they're just thinking about, should I stomp this motherfucker? They just want to make sure you don't make any weird movements. Mm-hmm. Nothing crazy, nothing predatory. But we saw several moose while we were there. They're enormous. Big, uh, big animals. It's intense, man. There was this, this uh, island out in Utah, the state park, Antelope Island. It was a buffalo reserve. But there were all these hiking trails and shit. You could go out there with these buffalo could would and sometimes could be roaming freely. And a friend of mine, we'd gone out there to hike this peak, and we're coming back down. And you can look down. We can see like five or 600 yards down on the trail, there's these two buffalo just standing. So, you know, we think, well, fuck, we'll just keep going. By the time we get down there, they'll be gone. You can see the herd off in the distance. And uh, we come around the bend, this, clear this big rock, and there they're standing. And I didn't know, man. I grew up. You know, around a lot of farms and cows and shit. You know, you just walk right through and get out of the way. I have no idea. I don't know anything about buffalo. And uh, <laughs> my buddy, he's just like immediately scared shitless. Brooke ran and got up on this rock, just kind of not knowing what to do. And I, I'm like, I don't know what I was thinking. And I just kept walking and I get literally 10 feet away from this thing. <laughs> and he's standing sideways, broad across the trail. And all of a sudden he just stops eating grass and turns and looks at me. And I realize his head is the size of a fucking Volkswagen Beetle. And I'm just like, all right, this was not. How very, close were you? Oh, like 10, 15 feet. Oh, my God. Easy. <laughs> and, and then it, it dawned on me how incredibly stupid I was. Oh, and, my God. And then I'm like, this thing probably runs 40 miles an hour. Like, well, <sighs> what am I going to do? And I took, I didn't know what else to do. So I took one more step toward, <laughs> towards it. And it just like kicked up and kind of ran off. But the fucking ground shook. And it was just like, I, oh man! I mean, that, that would have been, been the end of Sturgill been Simpson. So bad. No good songs. Yeah. No and good times. Brooks just standing on the rock, like what? you know, laughing. Could have gotten watching trampled to death. Holy shit! Yeah, there's a wild herd of uh, buffalo in Mexico. We're supposed to go hunting there sometime this winter for uh, that show Meat Eater. We're gonna go buffalo hunting. We're in Mexico. Um, actually, with the guy, the producer of the show, Meat Eater. Um, I, I don't know. Somewhere in Mexico, there's a, a giant wild herd of buffalo that they brought there in like the 1950s. Most bison today, like when you, you know you buy bison steaks, most of it's farm raised. There's very little wild buffalo left in this country. A lot, a big percentage of it is owned. It's property. Mm-hmm. You know, people have these big, um, giant game preserves, and they they have buffalo on them that you can hunt and they have buffalo in these uh livestock places where you buy like farm raised buffalo well, that's what buffalo's come down to ted turner's or yeah he's got a bunch of places that sell it right yeah isn't it just called ted's or something like that so. it's got a big bi- buffalo logo apparently there's a guy that i'm going to have on the podcast um that steve Rinella recommended to me that can tell it could explain in great detail what actually happened to the buffalo, but that there's a lot of misconceptions about why the buffalo population was so high. And he says there's a direct correlation between smallpox that when the, the French and the Spaniards, when they brought over smallpox or whoever brought it, I guess it was the French, it wiped out like 90% of the Native American population. Mm-hmm. And during that time, the buffalo population just exploded. Flourished. So when we came along and started slaughtering these uh, buffalo in mass. When I say we, white people, obviously yeah. it wasn't you, I mean, it was a long time ago. But those big piles of buffalo we bones. Have, we still have the guilt. So yeah, we yeah. do. White guilt strong. They, the reason why those guys were able to find these animals in such giant numbers was because the Native Americans had experienced this massive loss of casualty. I mean, massive 90% casualty rate because of smallpox. Because they were apparently, at least in this guy's book, he's, he's going to come on the podcast soon. We're working out the dates. 
um, the, he, they were on the verge of uh, extra. I guess extirpation is what they call it in when it's ex- local extinction, because the uh, the Native Americans had figured out horseback riding. And once they figured out horseback riding over the course of a couple hundred years, whatever it was, they had almost completely abandoned agriculture, and they were just chasing yeah. down the bison and killing them like fucking crazy. Evolved hunters. Yeah, so the idea was that the, they were on the verge of killing off the buffalo even before those crazy assholes came in and, and did it later on, hundreds right. of years later. It's just the smallpox got them, and then just... Well, it would have been inevitable anyway. Even if we hadn't showed up, they would have continued procreating mm-hmm. there have been more indians and you know probably right native americans I'm native sure. americans yeah it is kind of crazy we still call them indians one fuck up you know christopher columbus 600 his, his dumbass <laughs> reciprocated down to me sitting here on your podcast and i just perpetuated it yeah 500 plus years ago he thought he was in india he thought like, he was in india good enough chris good enough for chris good enough for me them look fucking what, indians <laughs> look what i did yeah, they were they were some brutal bastards, man. Like running around cracking babies' heads on rocks and yeah. shit, and just you know serial killers, basically. Well, the accounts of the missionaries that talked about what Columbus's people did, they're they're horrific, and we never heard that shit when they had Columbus Day. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why. We still celebrate that idiot. Yeah, it's very strange. Very strange. We celebrate that guy. Seems like there's a bunch of people we missed. You know, how come there's no Gandhi Day? We we celebrate Columbus. We don't celebrate Gandhi Day. You know, I mean, I, I would settle for a Jimmy Carter Day. Yeah, right. Over a Christopher Columbus. Man, Carter's day. a good man. He, does, he's a very he, he deserves good man. a day. Jimmy Carter should have a day. I, I agree with you. And still to this day, is a very good man. Very moral and ethical, and just very different than what you perceive to be a guy who would be the president of the United States. Hunter Thompson wrote a really great. Uh, piece about carter i can't remember what which book it was in but it just kind of summed that he was probably like the last real great politician he witnessed some speech somewhere i can't remember now the details that just it's like he felt for the first time like he actually heard a politician be a human being and yeah. just really talk from his heart and i think it left a pretty heavy impression with him but i keep wondering if that's possible again if somewhere in the future because of the transparency that we're experiencing now with the social media with the internet, with the access to information that we have today. I wonder if like eventually the bullshit artists will all be exposed to the point where they won't they won't be viable anymore. It's not a viable business model. Right. The accountability of the corporations that are financing these pol- yeah. politicians will all find, be exposed. They'll just find more bullshit artists. But I wonder, I wonder if there's going to come a point in time where we'll start to see an emergence of people that are talking in a real sense. Like like you're talking about real music. Mm-hmm. Well, th- there's got to be real politicians too that aren't hacks. You know, there's a bunch of shitty pop singing politicians that get pretty far, but we recognize them. We know they're bullshit artists. We mm. hear speeches, these canned fucking hooey, rah, rah, Sarah Palin style speeches, and we go, that's a pop star. That's a, a shitty one at that. There's got to be some real leader out there. You know what I'm saying? Someone who's not following a mold, but speaking from the heart. Someone who truly doesn't give a fuck. They must exist. And if they don't, it's possible they're going to. Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. Yep. That's the book? Yeah. It's a great fucking book. Yeah. I read part of it. Shark Hunt was a good one. Yeah, his um, crucified next documentary time. explains like the creation of all this stuff, like how he became an embedded reporter was so mm-hmm. fascinating that he was like one guy out of all these guys that had nothing to lose because he knew he'd never do this again. So he just was fucking going bonkers fucking on him. P.T. Barnard them all, man. It was yeah. Like, like, he talked football and got his way into Nixon's car. You know? Yeah, isn't that crazy? 
sitting with Nixon to ride to the airport, Hunter Thompson talking football. And they they made sure you're only going to talk football now. No, none mm-hmm. of this Vietnam stuff. <clears throat> and they just talked football. That would be bizarre as fuck. Be sitting there with Nixon. With I mean, just the the biggest hidden agenda ever, you know. Yeah. Just snowballing the president of the fucking United States, knowing you're going to rip his asshole wide apart in a book. Yeah. Right. You know, complete and total character study. Well, he was one of the most incredibly bizarre former presidents. He's a very odd guy. Do you see that book that was written out that they believe he was gay, and that his uh this guy that he's with Heard all the time was this. his boyfriend. Said the same thing about Lincoln though. Did they? Yeah. But didn't he like sleep with men to stay warm? His bodyguard. Slept with his he bodyguard? A secret service agent. They shared a bed and it's now it's speculated that they had a relationship due to some, some journal memoirs they found or something. Holla. You can justify just about anything. Who cares? Who gives you know, a fuck? We, should, we, could do, we could do well with a gay president. You know? Probably, maybe even better. Could be. You know, yeah. There'd be some empathy there. Maybe. Maybe not. You know, Julius Caesar was gay. You know what I'm saying? Alexander the Great was gay. A lot of fucking gay warriors. That's what people like to sleep on. Gay people fuck you up too. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't fight a gay dude. <laughs> Whoop your ass, man! <laughs> mean as shit. Nixon's darkest secrets. New biography digs up rumors. Richard Nixon's gay affair with mafia banker. Whoa, that's a guy. Yep, they're gay. I'm just gonna say yes. I'm looking at the two of them together for sure. Who knows? Maybe Nixon didn't like to fuck anybody but America. He it was one of those things. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't have a gender sexual. He was nation sexual. Just wanted to fuck America. It's like a like a Ken doll. He just didn't have any. Yeah. It was nothing. Just just evil thoughts. Probably. Well, he was a different. It's different breed back then. The different breed of politician. And post. I mean, he's coming along post Kennedy's assassination and bizarre dark time in America. That was. Well, that's that's when they kind of locked it all down. That's when the. All the Schedule One lists started popping up. Mm-hmm. You know, everything kind of. Yeah, that again. That's a valley. You know, I mean, there was a, a Great Hill. The Great Hill was like the 1960s, and then the 70s came along. And that was the big valley. Yeah, and that's where disco came from. That's what happened. Nobody had acid. Nobody had mushrooms. It's just cocaine, man. Just dancing, fueling all that bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> just like it's like 80s country. Bad judgment, but some good fucking music. You know, if it wasn't for disco, you wouldn't have Cool in the Gang, right? And that's where it came from. That's all dancing music. Fucking Bee Gees, man. Yeah, there you go, dude. They had some good jams. Seriously good jams. They do, right? People I, don't want to admit that. I don't, yeah, More Than not, a Woman? Come on. It's a good goddamn song. <laughs> Jamie's going to disagree. I was singing it. That's, that's a shame. Those guys are gone. Yeah, there's some, I mean, even the Stones stuck their foot in the disco water. Yeah, for sure. There was some funk to a lot of their songs that didn't exist in the earlier music they were creating product of the times man yeah what's today's time i mean what when you when you see this new door opening up for you you know when you see like all of a sudden your your career like you said you've clawed your way to the beginning you're obviously there's some shit going on man i mean i I told you my friend justin told me about you right when i like he goes man he goes, there's this dude, Sturgill Simpson. And as soon as he said that, I go, I, dude, I've been listening to nothing but him for two fucking weeks. And we were laughing and joking around. There's something going on, man. When my friend Justin finds out about shit, I always pay attention because he's got fantastic taste in music. But I had already found out. Like, there's there's something going on. You've, you've hit this sort of frequency where people are checking out your shit. 
It could be over tomorrow, man. Yeah, but it's not going to be. Let's yeah. be honest. This, this shit's going to ride. Just yeah. hang in there, fella. I, well, I've got, I've got a very clear plan. Do you? No matter what, I'm going to adhere to it. So, we want to tell us the plan, um, or is it secret shit? It's not really a secret. No, I just I'm going to make I'm going to make a total of five records, and then that's it. Be done. Why? I feel like. Well, I, I want I want them, there's a, there's a certain methodology to the entire thing, but uh, I don't know. I think a lot. Of, I, I don't know what else I would have to say beyond that. Um, and each one successfully kind of incorporate other elements of music that I love and, and get more progressively opened up. And so you've got this mapped up like in a formal way? Roughly, yeah. Do you have it written down somewhere? In various forms, voice memos and notes and things. But yeah, I mean, the idea, how, just, just the layout and then the sonic execution. Um, but then beyond that, a lot, of, a lot of artists keep recording in order to, to maintain some sense of relevancy or, you know, or, or just because, well, it's been a year's time to make a record. I just don't ever want to find myself in that position where I'm, um, I don't know. I think I would keep, I'd rather keep it more concise and focused right? and just try to, to know that I absolutely did my best every time. And then I think after five albums, I don't know, I'll probably, I already feel somewhat limited uh, in terms of songwriting and how much freedom there is to really get out what you want to say. So I, don't, I might try something else at some point, like just writing outright. Like writing a book? or Yeah. So just looking at it as another form of expression, but I, I, I think it's weird that you like think that you're going to run dry. Like what makes you think you're going to run dry? It's not, a, it's not a, an issue of running dry. just uh, certain things that I want to say. Or you know, make a statement with, and mm-hmm. use the opportunity to to hopefully make it other than something just about me, you know, try to promote a bigger message, I guess. So, and at some point, you just end up repeating yourself. Hmm, that's fascinating. I hope that's wrong. I hope you just keep banging them out and having a good time. But you're the only one who knows what's going on in your head. You know, you're you're the only one who's ever going to know your vision. Right. So the real job is just keeping myself out of a situation where I ever have to compromise that. That's fascinating, though, that you've done that, that you have this idea of these stages that you're going to put out. So you're only going to put out three more albums or five more? Three more. That's it? Yeah. But you've been doing music for how many years now? My whole life. But, I mean, professionally? For uh, the two albums? Uh, it's been only really, well, professionally, really, just like the last two years. I put my so, first record out in 2013. Okay, so two years... For two albums, so it's an, almost an album a year. Mm-hmm. So you've only got three more years to go, mm-hmm. and then what are you going to do? I have no idea. <laughs> oh come on, man! Like Just keep s- making music. Pontoucan in the jungle or something. I don't know. Do you plan on doing that, like expanding your horizons in some sort of great and unforeseen way? Well, I've, I mean, I've, I, by not doing this when I was younger, I was out doing a lot of other things that kind of culminated into whoever the hell I think I'm trying to be today. Right. So incorporating those experiences and a lot of those stories and people I've known and characters I've met, and then maybe even embellishing upon that in a, in a somewhat autobiographical sense, but still telling these stories in a way that other people say, yeah, I feel that way too. You know, you don't want to just say, hey, this is what the world looks like. It's just, this is what it looks like to me, and hopefully other people can can resonate with that. But it's an interesting 
there's a line you have to really kind of straddle between commercial commercial viability and making art. Does this uh, a rigid idea that you have, or do you think that it's possible that you can get to that three albums from now and then go, you know what, I'm enjoying the fucking shit out of this. I'm not gonna stop. I'm just gonna figure out a new concept. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Chris Gaines. I'm gonna mm. put on a. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is that his name, Chris Gaines? Chris Gaines, man. <laughs> the Garth Brooks character. <laughs> Maybe that's what he was doing. Well, I mean, o- outside of that, I think I- I've already, well, I say that just because I have those albums pretty clearly in in my head and I do what they'll sound like and what they'll be about. And, it, does, you know, someday you're dead. And everybody that ever knew you is dead. And it's like you were never here. But that little thing, I don't know what else I would really have to say about my version of the human experience past a certain point unless I go turn it off and do another 30 or 40 years of living and then make five more albums any real artist their best work is always in their in their pinnacle peak and then right before they die and then you get this this ocean of mediocrity of just kind of fumbling through existence there it's it's, it's a very repeated element that's an interesting perspective because you really think that when a guy puts out an album or there's parallels to authors to a lot of different art forms you spent your entire life thinking and then you express yourself like the culmination of this life and your first few pieces of work well there's a really interesting thing of somebody i think my buddy jason isbell put up there and retweeted talks about it takes 20 years to write your first record you get a year to write your second record and uh really doesn't matter what you do because music's the devil's work and you're fucked anyway but uh, (laughs) um but yeah it's like you know you you squeeze all this i had i had a good 30 years of of fucking up and mistakes and lessons and and you know a lot of personal you know you know development and certain experiences that i had that led me to kind of recognize and look at things that caused me to live that way and then to come out on the other side of that, like really supported and understood by someone that met me at my absolute worst and then helped me to get right here. It's just like I have all this clarity now. And I don't, you know, I think the only way to ever really grab that feel, I mean, I probably could have made some great records in my 20s because I was so fucked up. <laughs> you know, it, it, I'll never know. But so I'm just trying to like reference those feelings as I remember them the best I can. Right. And people think, oh, well, I made this record. This guy's just sitting around fucking smoking DMT and he's on drugs. And we didn't have it. There were no drugs involved in making this record. Uh, it's been, you know, I really don't even smoke dope that much anymore, especially with, with the sun. Certainly not when I'm at home. Usually on the road, and it's only then anymore to cure boredom. Um, so it's just really weird to find myself, but I still had to tell that part of my life, right, through story. When you were when you were in your twenties, you were partying a lot. I wouldn't even say partying. Um, it, it was always more exploratory for me. I never had an, an addictive personality, but I never. I don't know. I. I I just read a lot of the wrong books way too young and had this weird romantic, romantic drunk vision that everything was encapsulated under the umbrella of experience and I wanted to experience everything and some things you just shouldn't experience and they like what uh I mean every, whatever man I mean what whatever's in front of me um whatever I could find I, I just never I always just wanted to know you know um say when i got out of the navy living in seattle those were some darker days you know 
Well, but, you were saying that earlier about yeah. Seattle not just being the weather, but the, what the weather does to people. Yeah. Um, at some point, I just became very disenchanted, disillusioned with the military, so I got out and stuck around there for like a year. So yeah. there's that disenchantment and disillusionment, and then there's living in Seattle where you're right. dealing with the dreariness at the same time. Yeah. Met a, a really kind of... You know, I was excited this this young relationship, and I was going to all these parties and meeting people and and exposed to things I probably never would have been otherwise, and just kind of you know took it at, at face value for experience and jumped in. And then there was a lot of you know there's a lot of hard narcotics in that area, and I realized that those weren't very well for me. And like heroin, heroin, um, you know, methamphetamine, every anything you're looking for, really, whatever you can grab or afford. And I couldn't, I wasn't 21, I couldn't go out and drink. So there's all these other methods of escapism that I kind of fell into. And I got really bad off for a while. And actually, as a result, ended up missing my grandfather's funeral. Because wow. I, I knew if I came home, like, my family would come. My dad used to be an undercover narcotics officer. So he, you know, there was some, some weird, a lot of shame there after that. You know what I mean? And right. Then, uh, so I eventually ended up back in Kentucky and got away from that. And then it was just really just, I don't know, man. I never really was a very ambitious guy just sort of drifted and existed a lot and uh i don't know just if something it was more of exploratory just because i knew there was something else beyond whatever this is mm -hmm. maybe that's what i was trying to find but now how did you get involved with uh rick strassman how did you find out about him and how did you uh well meet him like i said my buddy played when we were talking on the porch last year and then he played your little excerpt I went home that night just kind of started scouring the internet on, on the subject and a lot of things related to it. And I found Dr. Strassman's book, downloaded it and read it probably three times. And it just like, it just absolutely blew my mind. The, um, all the correlating aspects of this converse, of that conversation. And I think what might have ultimately led him to it or what he was looking for in terms of its relation to, I don't, I, you should have him on someday. And have oh, he's going to be on. So oh, is he? Okay. Yeah, um, he's going to be on soon to promote the new book. When, right. What date, Jamie? The 12th, I think. 12th. November yeah, 12th. He, we, we had a, a great conversation in his kitchen about five days ago. I mean, he, he was very gracious enough to invite me out. because um, I read a very, the, very nice guy. Oh, extremely. I mean, he's a cool dude. He's so sweet. He though. probably would never think that himself, but he's like, in so yeah. many ways, it, it was, I'm really glad I went. And um, and it, it answered a lot of questions and, and even questions I didn't even know I had. But it was interesting to find out why he approached it and what he got. He probably knows more than anybody else on the subject at this point. But he's he's like a, he's just like a musician that has been touring a record for a year. He's so tired of talking about mm -hmm. it. Cause this is all 25 years ago. Right. And he's moved on. But um, people are still finding out about it though. It's yeah, people like still me. fairly obscure. Although his for his day to day existence, mm -hmm. it's been. Like it's sort of uh, overwhelmed his day-to-day -day existence for the past twenty-plus years, right. but for a lot of folks, they're just he's starting just to read his work and emails every day. He's like, but, yeah. So yeah, once I finished the record and had it mixed and mastered, I'm sort of like looking back through all the, everything that sort of led to this happening, and I knew. I went into it before we put the album, and I I really did think, okay, well, this is going to be the end of my career, <laughs> you know. Um, people are going to think this guy's nuts or what right. the hell, and but you know. But the work that that Dr. Strassman did, and I guess the bravery it took on his part to open that conversation back up in a, in a field, especially in the in the professional medical world, which is so stigmatized. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine like the balls that must have taken. 
yeah after spending years of your life following this this profession and all the school he underwent and so i wrote him an email you know i got the i got his contact off cotton i just wrote him basically say hey thank you i wrote you know i shared the record with him through a file i was just like i just want to thanks for your work and the inspiration that i got from the book and, and along with some other things and he wrote back and it sort of you know email buddies sort of thing and then uh i, I was going out to phoenix and it's like just stop by and have a cup of coffee and just like anybody else you know yeah yeah he's a, just a regular guy but he's a he's in, he's got some really fascinating stories of his explorations in this realm uh not just physically but just dealing with the red tape that was required to do a real FDA study two years of yeah. bureaucratic nightmare man yeah to do one of the first psychedelic uh studies that you know uh, have a real scholar involved in testing people on some serious schedule one hallucinogens that the army research labs they were they were aware of that shit in the 60s absolutely they had um that's how mckenna found out about it terrence mckenna got a hold of dmt through a friend who was a chemist at the army research lab and apparently this guy had they had like a barrel of it yeah oh yeah (laughs) which if you know about the effective dose of dmt is about like a pinky nail is a lot. Like if you had a pinky nail sized piece of DMT or, or pile, you might as well have a football stadium of weed. You're going, you're yeah. getting blasted. I mean, you're going to the center of the fucking universe with a pinky size. So imagine these guys had barrels <coughs> or stuff. And, um, McKenna's store. I found out about McKenna because of Hicks. Hicks re- re- mentioned McKenna on st- in a, one of his bits. What Terrence, Mc- he would talk, he'd talk about, taping mushrooms under the chair of everybody in the room like he he would like say something and then he would drag them into this i've taped mushrooms under all your chairs reach down it's what terrence mckenna would call a heroic dose Mm -hmm. five dried grams you know and um i was like who's this mckenna guy and so uh i started looking into mckenna and reading uh some of the things that i could find about him online and then listening to some audio recordings but he was uh he was already dead by the time i had found out about him unfortunately but his um you know his discovery of dmt and the way he described it in one of his audio recordings was just one of the most amazing things i'd ever heard because this is a guy who had already done like lsd and Mm. morning glory seeds and he had experienced psilocybin and he thought he had really traveled he thought he kind of knew what was available and out there he did i mean dennis they did a lot of traveling i guess but uh man like the aboga and I, like I said, DMT, I don't, I don't really have any experience to speak of firsthand, so I, I try not to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we got to change that. We got to hook that up. Hey, man. Allegedly. Well, you know, I, Dr. Strassman said that, and I, I'm inclined to agree, although at this point, like, after, I should have a, f- a fucking PhD in this shit. I've read about it, and I don't even know what the firsthand aspect is. But uh, he said at this point in my life, now that all these things are formulating and my career's budding and I have a newborn son that, there's a high potential it could make for a pretty unsettling experience because it's all this stuff that's finally happening in my life that's so positive. Like the idea of thinking you're dying and having to let go of that could be make for an unsettling. You'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I believe you. Yeah. You'll be fine. I mean, I've had some some. I wouldn't say heroic. I'd say foolish dosage. <laughs> of psilocybin. Um, you know, the first time you ever you ever buy a mushroom, nobody's there to tell you, hey, well, this is how much it takes, you know? Right. So I, I think I bought like a quarter and just ate the whole bag, man. And that was my first, I mean. What is that? In seven grams. It's like seven, seven or eight grams. grams. Whoa. And how was that? 
that was a great time, man. I went, <laughs> I went, I, you know, I, I never, I never got the freakouts except. Uh, well, that's good. You have a good soul. You have LSD, a good head on you. The few times I tried LSD, though, I didn't really enjoy it because it all. Every time it seemed like on the tail end of the trip, there's, there's this. It takes this turn, and there's almost this, almost a sinister underlying energy about it. I don't know that I never experienced with psilocybin. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, psilocybin's very giggly. Yeah, you know, and I've heard people say that it's like it's the starting gate for psychedelics, and I, I, to that I say, go eat twelve or fifteen grams and tell me that you're. Yeah, you the know. starting gate is only if you have a small. It's overwhelming. It's completely overwhelming, and and also very very visionary. Like you see, I remember um, just seeing Stanhope and I did mushrooms the day the war started. The day the Iraq War started, mm. we we the we, first one or the first one, not okay. not uh in oh, the eighties, oh, right. the you know the the one after nine eleven. Gotcha. And um, we were blitzed as they were announcing on television the war was starting, and I'll never forget. Stand up was like, "Oh my God, they've got a kickoff." They're like, "War coverage <laughs> begins at five. He's like, "The war has a kickoff," and we just fell to the ground. We're howling, <laughs> laughing, and this the walls oh, around us were all made of like these honeycomb geometric patterns. Like the, everything was basically gone. Like I was trying to still have conversations with him, but he was just this sea of patterns, you know, that like b- blurrily yeah. represented what his physical form was. But it was all just like really tiny flower of loves you know that little flower of life thing it was like i mean that was his his entire body was made out of those as was all the walls around us and i mean it's like it's almost identical to dimethyltryptamine the molecular footprint right so it's I mean, pretty close you take a high dose four fox four aloxy and and dimethyltryptamine is how it's been explained i think what happens is well, um extra oxygen this all this, some, we're obviously not chemists, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we are not but fucking if, studying the periodic table. If you read Strassman's accounts of it, there's there's um, where they talk about how it's synthesized in the body. It's very similar. It's got a lot of the same elements as real uh, natural human neurotransmitters, so mm-hmm. it's very easily accepted into the mind. The blood-brain barrier accepts it. Craves it, apparently. Well, yeah, I mean, dimethyltryptamine for sure. We know that. We know that it's. We didn't know it's created in the liver. It's created in the lungs. It's not just created in the pineal gland. It's created in other parts of your body. They also know that it's in like you know who knows how many fucking plants, like a shitload of plants. It's just out there. It's all over the place. I, you know, I I think it's cool that guys like him are out there. So important. I, I, I know I've had some unbelievably profound introspective like healing experiences especially from mushrooms on the high dose you know, yeah i mean it's it really forces you to to look at a lot of things maybe you don't want to or you're unable to and just kind of pulls apart the defense mechanism you know yeah destroying the ego the, the one thing that allows people to push forward in spite of you know or because of everything that they've learned their whole life this the built-up defense mechanisms the built-up definitions of yourself and then you know you're pushing forward with all this stuff attached to you like it's like an armor but really you find out that that's really the shit that's kind of holding your perspective back and if you release all that armor and just look around and release this idea of you and then just experience it's a very different world you're living in that that different world is rarely tapped into in, in regular life but that different world resets your entire perspective of your existence 
And if that's not good for you, what the fuck is everybody doing meditating? Why is everybody going to church? Why is everybody, you know, going to workshops and trying? They were trying to get better. Everyone's trying to get better. I've never seen a single thing in life that has the same effects that psychedelic drugs do. And yet they're illegal. I mean, it's one of the weirdest aspects of our time that these things have these unbelievably profound effects, but they're illegal. Whereas there's, you know, X number of sanctioned drugs that don't have these effects that are deadly. Make and your asshole bleed yeah, everything all else. Sorts of sell that shit all day. Well, know. I mean, they're trying to crack down now on, <laughs> on the prescriptions, on, on pain pain medication prescriptions, because right. there has so many people that are addicted to them, and they've realized, that, look, we've oh, made man. a nation of junkies. It's I mean, I'll tell you, the part of the country you're from, man, I mean, that, that is fucking, that is prescription drug central, right? Hillbilly heroin, man. It's unbelievable. It's right. It's right. I mean, I, the town that I'm originally from, uh, it's called Jackson. It's like right in the middle of southeast Kentucky, like hard Appalachia. And I remember as a small child, it, it was very much, a, it was a, a wonderful community. There was small business. Main Street was thriving. Everybody knew everybody. Um, and then, it, but all the major industry was based on coal, which slowly evolved from strip mining, or from deep mining, I'm sorry, into strip mining once they figured out they could get the coal with less bodies. And uh, so that just kind of leveled the topography. But then even when that industry sort of dried up and they moved on, well, the coal pulled out, and then Walmart and Oxycontin moved in. And it, I mean, within a matter of years, it just completely changed the entire face of of the region. Wow. And now it's just, you know, like people say poor. You don't even know what fucking poor is, man, you know. And and there's 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 a... it's sad because there's no, there's not even the idea of like the the possibility of opportunity coming to that region. You know, nothing, no industry is going to come in there and like start building car manufacturing plants because then they have to train the shit out of there. It's just not logistically very sound for any type of industry other than growing dope and making meth. You know, uh, like they, they, unless they really push the hemp legislation through and then they could put a lot of money and food on people's tables down there but I, that would know, be incredible um and b- weirdly enough in kentucky they're they're really finally pushing toward that. i never yeah. thought i'd say this but there's a guy named mitch mcconnell who for once did something i agree with and uh he's really trying to get that kentucky was at one time the late the nation's leading hemp manufacturing point the hemp museums and a little town called Versailles. they're doing a lot of interesting things yeah. in kentucky kentucky reintroduced elk yeah and they have giant successful herds of elk. I mean, they're hunting them now. They've reintroduced them. They've done it over a period of a few decades. They used to have elk all across the country. It was illegal for a long time to hunt elk in Kentucky, and then they and then because they were getting the population to kind of grow back out. Well, there was they, none. There were none. Yeah. So the the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation brought elk in, and they 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 sort of seeded the area, and now it's become very successful. And now they have hunts. Hmm. Well, there used to be a lot of elk. Yes, in the care, that back in the Daniel back Boone the, days, yeah. Davy Crockett days, you know, hunted the shit out of them. Hunted the shit out of them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's but it's interesting that Kentucky is on the ball with hemp as well. Right. Well, think, the tobacco industry took a big hit, and that really hurt the state economy. And then so that you know they have to do something. It, I hope hemp does. I hope really that's what becomes the the next savior well, I mean, because farmer, and it will change the consciousness too. What, you well, you know how that's going to go when DuPont and all the petroleum industries and everybody else start throwing more money at making it not happen. I mean, that, that's why that's why it was illegal. 
you know. I wonder if they're going to be, yeah, that is why it was made illegal in the first place, but I wonder if they're going to be able to do that because I, I feel like they, even they don't have enough resources to stop that kind of truth forever. Right. right. It's already kind of out And there. what you're seeing with, with what's going on in Colorado is even Warren Buffett's companies are getting in on it. Warren's Buff, Warren Buffett has a company that leases giant warehouses specifically to weed growers. They have commercials where they're, they're, they're showing how they have these tiered systems where there's uh, like second floor and first floor. You could fit in more weed plants than a single floor warehouse. This is Warren motherfucking Buffett. And his company is involved in actively pursuing marijuana growers to lease their warehouses to grow marijuana because it's legal there. So it becomes a part of, yeah, is it going to be big corporations that are profiting on it? Maybe. But guess what? It's not hard to grow. Right. You know, it's not hard. I mean, it's, it's this is not creating Oxycontins in some sort of fucking laboratory where you have to wear a, a spacesuit. You know, you're, you're talking about a plant that grows like that. You don't even have to do anything to it. Just stick it in the ground and come back in a month. You get some shit growing there. It's super easy. I mean, yeah, it is a hard. It's kind of hard to fuck up, really. It's hard to fuck up. I mean, you can do it better. You can make the kind of weed that these botanist motherfuckers in California and Colorado and Washington State are making. But what, hap- what happens when it does eventually, you know, like everything else, it, it, at some point it is going to go mainstream, and then they're going to commodify the hell out of it and commercialize it, and everywhere you go is going to look like a 14-year-old's bedroom. And This is the Warren Buffett's company. Look at this. Cube, what is it called? Cubic Designs. Sh- scroll so we can see it. So we can see the name of the company. Cubic Designs. So this is like, see how he's got these tiered systems that is entirely for fucking growing weed. <laughs> wow. We're going to go tour a, a, a big grow up in Washington State when we play. Oh, I love it. I love it. I think it's amazing. I think the corporations are going to get in on it, but I don't think they're going to be able to control it. I just think something like weed is too easy to grow. You, you definitely, they're definitely going to make a lot of money. Right. They could definitely get exclusive deals with certain providers and stores. Maybe they can make it difficult to have a license to own a store where you could sell a shitload of it. But if it's legal, people are going to grow it. They're going to grow their own. They're going to grow neighborhood mm-hmm. growing weed operations. And if they do allow small businesses to grow it, I think the laws that stated today is that you have to grow the marijuana and then sell it. You can't buy, like you couldn't bu- grow it and then sell it to me and then I buy it and sell it. Oh, okay. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I would have to grow my own and sell my own. So you have to be a grower as well as a dealer, which is fine. I mean, that's a small group of people could, you know, cultivate a large amount of marijuana and make a shitload of money. That's good. I saw this really, um, not too long an episode of Vice where they were looking at the, the industry and, and yeah, he's, I guess they're not allowed to use banks. Yeah, in Colorado, and they're showing these basically starting to change. Blackwater guys escorting mm-hmm. the payouts every day and shit. And I was just like, holy, you know, you don't even consider that aspect. How much money they probably took out of the cartels' hands the first few years? I mean, oh yeah, fuck yeah. It'd yeah. Be, it'll be interesting to see what this all really turns into. I wonder if people have it been won't threatened. All be positive, you know. Well, it's too much money, right? It's too much money. Yeah, it is. It's a curious thing because it's extremely profitable and it's current. 
and people are aware of the profitability of it. People are aware of the, not only that, they're aware that traffic uh, incidents of pulling people over for DUIs is at an all-time low. Murder is dropped. Everything's dropped. Violent crime dropped. I mean, you're showing a, a huge increase in the amount of money that's being generated as far as like for state revenue. More than $100 million in taxes this year. And then you're showing these drops in crime, drops in DUIs, drops in murder. Like, there's nothing you could say other than let's let's try this somewhere else. Any state that's struggling, any state that doesn't have some sort of a massive resource pool, like uh, natural oil or gas or something right. like that that it's relying on, if they are in need of an industry, boy, that's a fucking pretty easy one. It's right there for you. Dive on in, bitches. You can make some money. Three months from now, it's just going to make you some more money all over again. I, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder how many states are going to adopt it this, this next upcoming election. I would imagine it's going to be another couple, at least. I would like to see five or six more just jump in and start just wildly. You know what would be the shit? If Texas jumped in. Utah's talking about it. Are they real? You know, because the Mormons figured out, well, if we can make a fuck ton of money off this, too. So, I mean, if Utah's talking about it, then... I can't. I mean, I, I think the South will still be the last part of the country where it ever materializes. But there's a lot of fucking stoners in Utah, man. There's a lot of stoners in Utah. I was in Utah. I did uh, Salt Lake City. I did um, Salt Lake City's a really liberal town. Weirdly it is. Enough, you it's know? weird. The the I think they all kind of moved out to the outskirts. So now you got this little hotbed of uh, re rebellion right there in the middle of it all. You know, Wise Guys Comedy Club. That place is the shit. And it's right in Salt Lake, and all my friends who work there, they all come back and go, dude, have you been to Salt Lake? <laughs> it's the best kept secret in the United States. Oh, it's fucking banging. It's a, they're nice people, too, man. That is a nice town. And a lot of weed. There's a lot of weed going around Utah. If they grow it, too, they're going to start seeing massive amounts of profit, and they're going to see a shift in consciousness. That's the big mm -hmm. thing. The shift in consciousness. It might take a few more years to recognize that and the effects of that, but people are just going to be nicer. It's just going to happen. You can't you can't smoke a ton of weed and keep the entire population with the same anger level. It's, it's going to change. It'll change the way people interact with each other, and that will in, that will in turn change the entire culture. Yeah, it's the genie's out of the bottle. You don't really see fights breaking out in coffee shops in Amsterdam. It's not. It's very rare. Very rare. Yeah, but. Oddly enough, a lot of jiu-jitsu guys like to smoke weed really? and then go do jiu-jitsu. Bruce was a big pothead, wasn't he? Yeah, he used to eat hash. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that killed him. I remember when I was a teenager. Uh, is that bullshit? They said yeah. his brain swelled from the hash. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, he apparently had a, a head injury. And, uh, aneurysm. Yeah, I think he also had some sort of a reaction to the drugs he was taking for it. I should probably Google that. I think you're right. I think Linda gave him something for his... Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, you just get he just get stoned as hell and work out all day, right? I mean, that was yeah. He loved hash. Apparently, apparently he was really into it, man. Um, but if you've ever eaten hash, you would kind of get it. The the um, eating of marijuana is one of the least respected but most ass kicking of all the psychedelic experiences. I prefer edibles. Anymore. Yeah, man. The shit that they're throwing around today. There's these dude called Los Hermanos de Gumi. Is that what they, that the name of them? The <laughs> yeah. Gumi brothers? Yeah. These motherfuckers. My friend Ari had this Comedy Central taping, and these guys showed up with these gummy bears. And, they, and then they, I go, I'm looking at the gummy bear. It's a bear. I go, how much did I eat? The guy goes, no more than the head. 
I'm like, well, why are you making it so big? Why? Yeah. You, what do you mean, no more than the head? What happens if I eat more than the head? He's like, don't do it. <laughs> like, don't, why you made it? <laughs> you made it. Joey Diaz eats the whole fucking thing. Oh man, he's a hero. He's a hero. It's a man amongst men. We were out here months ago for this uh, play with Greg Allman down at the Annenberg Center, and some guy came or somebody gave us these little. Man, they were tiny. They were like these little tiny little cupcake with like a peace sign on the top of it, no bigger than a nickel. <laughs> and it, um, it just absolutely destroyed me. <laughs> I, it wasn't, I had, to, I had to, I had to like somehow find my way back to my hotel room just to lay down and just, that was, there was nothing fun about it. I was completely non-functional. Um, the Saturday night at 8 PM and I was just done. Yeah. They're saying that Bruce Lee's brain had been swollen uh, when they checked his autopsy, they said there was no visible external injury. However, according to autopsy reports, his brain had swollen considerably from 1,400 to 1,575 grams, which is a 13% increase, which is pretty big. He was only 32. The only substance found during his autopsy was equagesic. I don't know what that is. Um, I'll Google it. Okay, the only substance... Okay. The doctor said in an interview that he he died from an allergic reaction to the muscle re relaxant and equagistic, whatever it is, which is described as a common ingredient in painkillers. Doctors announced knee, uh, Lee's death officially. It was ruled death by misadventure. Huh. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. But I guarantee he had some head injuries because he was sparring. You know, mm -hmm. if you're if you're doing the kind of shit that he was doing, he was experimenting a lot with various martial arts and how to. Most likely, he got hit. I mean, that's just a part of the game. And if he was doing really experimental, wild stuff, like I know he was, I mean, he's involved in a lot of different sort of assimilating a lot of different martial arts styles. Oh, and I'm sure, I'm sure Don Inosanto got a shot or two in there somewhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. Yeah, all of them. You know, there's a, there's some recent video, uh, recently released video of him sparring at some uh, some karate tournament thing, and he has his headgear on, his full body armor on, and he, him and his dude are going at it. So if he was involved in stuff like that, he's most likely he was getting hit in the head. It's just the way it is. He worked with a lot of boxers. I know he worked with Gene LaBelle. He did some judo with Gene. And it's, just, it's just the nature of martial arts, especially when you're involved in uh, striking sports. So who knows? Who knows what it was that caused his head to bleed? But it wasn't eating hash. No. That's a shame. Have you gotten a hold of some of the L.A. Um, edibles while you're here? Uh, this trip, no. I'm a yes, you have. You uh, just don't know it yet. Uh, <laughs> Man, the last experience kind of put me off, dude. I'm not kidding. Don't like, be all, scared, all three homie. of us ate that fucking cupcake, and all three of us were done. I mean, they they don't they got to put a dosage loss mm -hmm. on that shit. They do it, now. They, they put do. dosage numbers on. It was not yeah. cool, man. I mean, it was just not not night. My night was over. Well, they have this. Um, they have these things called Chiba Chews, and some of them I think will go up to 250 milligrams. Which is just insane. An effective dose is like 20 or 30. That's insane. Like yeah. 20, 20 is not bad for like a mellow, easygoing, body high. 30, you're pushing the boundaries of paranoia. 40, 50, you're in a cold sweat. Mm -hmm. 250. Joey Diaz ate two of them. There's a chocolate bar at a place I go to. It's 40 doses. Game over. 40 doses in one chocolate bar. a small bar, too. 
What the fuck, it's man? How big is small? Small, like a, not a big bar, you know, where it's like five pieces. It's right. Like a little. Like how many Snickers, inches wide? Snicker size. Snicker size. 40 doses. Yeah. 40 people. Why? I mean, why? Imagine if you like ate you it by said, yourself, though. One or two hits, and, and it's like. Because you want to see Buddha. Right, you do. There's only one way to see you him. You got to see Buddha. You got to close your eyes, shut the lights out, and watch the dance. Yeah, I don't know. Some, at some point, while like, I realized, like, I, I, start, I almost felt like I was getting anxiety from smoking it. And it definitely the carcinogen, and as a singer now, I got mm-hmm. you know, I really got to be cautious about. It. So I just kind of quit smoking, and then the edibles. It's enti- you're right. It's an entirely different feeling. It's more of an anti-anxiety, almost like an overall body high. Whereas if you try to go out on stage, I can't I can't smoke and perform because like you get so internalized. I feel like I can't connect with the crowd at all. Right. Um, so I just learned a long time ago not not to do that. Um, but with the edibles, man, it, it almost just opens you up opens you up and, and it's much more expressive i think do you know about the uh conversion in your body like the no 11 hydroxy metabolite people who have heard this on the podcast please bear with me i know you've heard this um when you eat marijuana it produces something called 11 hydroxy metabolite as it passes through your liver and apparently it's four to five times more psychoactive than thc oh absolutely that's why it's such an intensely different experience it's because it's a totally different it's drug when you eat it i mean you yeah so, well, in the in the sensory depth tank, sensory deprivation tank, it's very psychedelic when you eat it because you you just you're in that experience which is so bizarre as it is. Yeah, you don't even really need drugs in those things, do you? No, you don't need anything. What's that like? You have one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Want to do it? How long are you here for? I fly out tomorrow at noon. Let's see what we can do. You should try it though. At some point in your life, for sure. I don't yeah. know if they have one in Nashville, but they're they're popping up all over the country. They had one in D.C. when I was in D.C. They people from uh, the show in Philly. The, they have one in Philly. Like they're they're showing up all over the country. That's people are starting to open up these tank, tank centers. And this is another thing that didn't didn't exist in. I mean, most cities it was how, really how hard tough, to find one. Oh, if you have your own, I mean, you got to maintain the pH levels. And mine has a full filtrate. I have a commercial oh, level one. Float Nashville. Float Nashville, bam, Whoa. son, you're in. I work on buying a car first. Though. You don't. I mean, it's not expensive. I mean, you don't have to have one. Right. You go and uh, rent one out. Just go and uh, you know set I would an love appointment. To try it, yeah. You should definitely try it. It's one of the most profound feelings of relaxation you'll ever so you feel. You have like your a life. complete and total disassociation experience. You're like, you can't. You're, you lose feeling of your body. Right. Yeah. You don't think you're okay. there anymore. You think okay. your mind has been released from oh, your body yeah. and your mind's flying through space, I'm completely yeah. untethered from the body. You, the, you don't feel the water. The only time I've ever experienced that, uh, even on, I never had any type of complete disassociation experiences, even on, on really high doses of psilocybin. The one time I ever, I think the, I would, what I would classify as the most psychedelic experience I've ever had was from a drug that's not even normally associated with the psychedelic fan, which is dextromethorphan. What is that? DXM. It's it's a lot of kids like pound bottles of Robitussin to get, but I mean by the time you consume enough DXM that's in the Robitussin, you're you're doing so much horrible shit to your body. <laughs> um, but I, it, I only I only encountered it one time. We were at this festival in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a friend of mine had somehow gotten hold of this it was pure medical grade dextromethorphan we had a digital scale of gel caps weighing it out and it's about 400 milligrams it's just the most amazing completely inexplicable experience i've ever had from, wow um my, my buddy brian he's like you know sturgill you you need to hear music 
on this. And he's like, it's, it's as good as it fucking gets. So first off, the, the weirdest part of the whole experience is we're, we're out in this KOA campground in North Carolina and just surrounded by hippies and there's night, you know, tanks going off and shit. And like, that ain't my thing, but tanks. Yeah. Like nitrous tanks. They'll oh. come look at these hippie festivals. I thought you meant like, no, 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 no. I don't no. understand. Um, hippies so have tanks. Now? we had to make it back down to the parking lot where his truck was parked through the, through this trail. You couldn't see shit, man. It was like the most complete flutter vision ever. And I'm just stumbling, not walking into trees. And, and, and Brian was like, oh, man, just close your eyes. I'm like, what are you talking what? about? What are you talking about? Close my eyes. He's like, just close your eyes. Trust me. And I closed my eyes. And I, I, I swear as I'm sitting here, it was all of a sudden like I could see the trail plain as day directly in front of me. And almost like the entire canopy had this, this moon lamp just turned on and flooded it with light. And everything what? was so clear. And we walked all the way back down to his truck. With, with your a, eyes with closed. With eyes closed. What? I swear to you, man. I'll never, to this day, I'm not even, you know, it was, it was an, insane. And we got Did you only do it once? One time. I don't what I, the I've fuck? never even met anybody that's even heard of it or knew where to find it since. But uh Brian used to get tons of this shit and he'd, he'd just lay with his headphones on for like eight hours in his living room and listen to music. And you're completely Is it illegal? Oh, uh well I mean to, to possess it in that kind of quantity, I would what? you have to have permits and things like that to to But uh we got to the truck and he had a Toyota Tacoma, you know, with the bucket seats. And a really nice stereo, like this booming ass stereo. And we just put in like Band of Gypsies or something. And I laid that bucket seat back, man, and closed my eyes. And within a matter of second, I mean, half a minute or a minute, I, I wasn't in that truck anymore. I wasn't in this bucket seat. I felt like you never floated down a river on an inner tube. Yeah. It was the same feeling, except instead of an inner tube, I was laying in this little, like my own little personal cloud. Just kind of like, and as, just as I'm sitting here talking to you, I was in this cloud cruising through this golden sienna purple sunrise sky just like the most booming blissful euphoria i've ever felt listening to Jimi hendrix and this wow. lasted like six hours man you're just like cruising through the sky wow i've I've never had that from any of you know what people commonly associate as hallucinogens or um that stuff sounds intense. Yeah, I talked to, to Dr. Strassman about it. He said there's not a lot, of, lot of, there's never really been any studies. No, there's not a lot known. <laughs> You're it's a like, guinea pig. Sturgill Simpson, human guinea pig. No, well, this was all years and years ago, man. I don't know that I'm... You should do a trip report on Airwood. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, uh, the forum. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, if you... Well, that's one of the most uh, important resources, Airwood is, for people understanding what, what they're getting into. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of really educated, very very like well thought out reviews of the various compounds and different yeah. different effects they have like I said, never, trip I, reports. I don't i didn't know anything about it until then and i've never seen it since but i do remember uh the guy saying that the difference in three or four or two hundred milligrams is you know a thousand times stronger trip <laughs> so you know, nobody's ever really documented the, the latter so to speak a, a thousand times stronger trip four or five hundred milligrams you know you can you know, <laughs> Wow. Is there any negative uh, downside? Um, the only thing I remember is I might have had like a slight allergic reaction because I remember feeling like I had sun poisoning and I was like really sc scratching my back, kind of tripping out on this for a second. This is on the early onset. And the guys were like, what are you doing? I was like, man, I think I got too much sun today. My, my back's really itching. And, and uh, Chad was like, no, it's not. You're fine. And as soon as he said that, like the whole sensation went away. Mm. But... Uh, I didn't. Have, I mean, it wasn't. There was nothing negative about the experience. And when it's over, the come down. 
just like just goes away back to baseline just kind of wears off wow yeah that's so weird yeah. uh, you you always wonder like if there was if it was easy for people to do research on psychedelics and there were, it was respected and it was something that people pursued as opposed to being like you know if you do research on on certain things you could be thought of as a pariah you could right. it could fuck with you you know you could you could be ostracized people could say oh this guy just wants to get high He's just trying to get people high. He's like he's just doing sp- experimental drugs. He's not right. doing serious research. Or they think there's some hidden agenda or zealotry yeah. behind it, right? Yeah, it could be. There's a massive hospital in Lexington, Kentucky that uh, is called it was called the Narcotics Farm, and it was a, it was a, a criminal institution for for drug. Uh, you know, William Burroughs was there for a while, and, he, wow. addict, they, and they, they did a lot of, like, highly barbaric experimental addiction <sighs> treatments there back in, like, the 40s and 50s, and just unspeakable things, like, you know, like dropping people's genitals in ice water or something like that. That's not that unspeakable. Right. I can well, speak of this. Well, like, kind of ridiculous approaches to dealing with, with heroin and methadone <laughs> right. addiction, and, and uh, I know they did some psychedelic studies, I'm sure, back there, but... It, you know, it's the hospital still stands there, and it's just the most ominous, creepy building. Methadone is a weird one, isn't oh, it? Oh, that's horrible shit, man. They use it to get people off heroin, but, but yet it's, it's worse for you than heroin. The withdrawals are way worse, yeah. How it it just makes them well too, right? It doesn't get them high. Is that the deal? It it whatever the genetical attachment that you you know you heroin is like one of those drugs that actually modifies your body's you know biochemistry in a way that you become physically dependent on it so they're kind of facilitating that whatever it is that causes the sickness when you withdraw but the shit it's like it's way worse for you (laughs) and it doesn't get you high nobody talks about like really good methadone music you know like yeah right people did heroin and made some fucking incredible music nobody did methadone made some awesome shit there was these guys that used to come to the pool hall that used to hang out in White Plains, and uh, they were called the Methadonians. That's what we would call them. They were these <laughs> dudes that came over from the Methadone Clinic, and they'd come over and play pool, and they were just zombified, just dead in the eyes. Yeah, what's his deal? He's one of those Methadonians. Methadonians. These poor guys come over from the Methadone Clinic. Crazy, what, do you guys, what do you guys do around here when you got to take a massively, intensely painful piss? Oh, you got to do it right now? Oh, yeah. Go run. Go, right, go cool. take a piss. All right, We're almost right. done anyway. All you right. you run, and I'll tell everybody how to get to your website. Sturgill Simpson, as he takes his little girl's bladder to the bathroom. Not everyone can deal with the bulletproof coffee and all that stuff. Water. Just sitting there. It just weighs. Weighs on you. You have it? I know. I said you'll have that sometimes. Not you. Yeah, occasionally. You and uh, yeah. third person sense. But I get it occasionally too, man. It, d- it definitely does happen. Uh, Sturgill's website. His Twitter is Sturgill Simpson. Um, and if you uh, go to it, it's uh, actually that image. that um, the, the, uh, the image of the earth sands the turtles underneath it. Mm. Similar image. But Sturgill's, uh, the CDs that I have, I'm uh, like I said, I'm a big fucking fan. He's got uh, several songs that I'm really into that I'm listening to right now on iTunes. Um, but the CDs, let me find them on my playlist here. Meta Modern Sounds and Country. That's uh, that's the name of one. That's the the latest one. That's the one that's the most psychedelic. 
And then the other one is uh, High Top Mountain, which is fucking fantastic. I really, really dig it. Um, they're very different, but uh, both of them are equally, equally uh, unique and kick-ass. I love all of it. I'm sure he's got a website, too. Must be like SturgillSimpson.com, right? Whoa, check this out. His website? No, well, sort of. Colorado health officials want to ban almost all recreational edibles. Ha <laughs> ha, pussies. Really? Yeah, HuffPo. Wow. SturgillSimpson.com is his website. That's ridiculous. We're just reading something on Huffington Post that the health officials in Colorado want to ban all edibles. Because uh, kids are getting into them and shit. They're just nerfing the world. That's all they're doing. They're just nerfing the world. So, so like a really sensationalist piece about this on some national news program the other night because children were Halloween, yeah, a hold of them and, and having overdoses and. Uh, there's no. The, it's really scary. So you're gonna out, you're gonna like outlaw Clorox too? Yeah. Because your kids get under the fucking sink. You're, well, Clor- you're a bad parent. I mean. Clorox is way worse. First of all, <laughs> right. Because the kids that are having the overdose on pot, they're not dying. Well, uh, they might freak out, but they're not gonna die. Does it's not toxic, right? Just it's, doesn't you it's like anything that can fuck your kids up. Just don't let yeah. them get to it, you know. Yeah, don't let your kid play with hammers. You know, shouldn't fucking go to Home Depot and shut it down. It's take, stupid. Take away spoons. Yeah, the idea that adults, a grown adult, should not be able to buy an edible that has a clearly marked label. All these experiences that we're talking about, like you ate this little thing, it was the size of the nickel, you got fucked up. <laughs> you learn. You learn. Yeah. you're here. Everyone's fine. It's like <laughs> the the lowest worry version of overdose ever, because the overdose is just ah. Well, when I say overdose. It's still. I mean, all it means is I'm going to go lay in bed and have yeah. a really good time instead of walking around and having a really good time. You but know? there's no ill effects. No like, ill effects. Your body doesn't break. Your mind doesn't melt. You're going to be fine. At the end of the day, you, you might just get a really great night's sleep. Yeah, I'm not really recommending you give it to your kids, but if your kids <laughs> get a hold of it, just stay with them. Just keep stay in the room with them. Everybody's gonna be okay. They linked two deaths to to them. Whatever. One, one somebody ate one and fell off of a off of a hotel. Mm-hmm. Another guy. It says Richard Kirk may have been on pain meds in a pot edible when he killed his wife. Well, pain meds. I guarantee you, I'd go with that. The pot edible would have probably it was pot edible was probably wrestling with the pain meds as he was grabbing hold of the trigger. Fuck all that, man. You can't blame a guy falling off a roof on pot. What are you doing on the roof, stupid? Pot didn't tell you to get up on that roof. Why'd you fall off that roof? You know, he probably would have fallen off that roof no matter what he was on. You can't fuck around on roofs, dummy. Especially when you're blitzed. That's a silly idea. Who knows what he was doing, but to blame that on pot is fucking stupid. Instead of blaming that on pot, how about you think about how many fucking people don't jump off the roof when they're on pot? Mm -hmm. It's like... A lot more. It also says that uh, <clears throat> the cookie he ate didn't give him the recommended immediate effect that he wanted, so then he ate six times the recommended dose. <sighs> silly bitch. You can you can die Rest from in cigarettes peace. standing on the fucking corner, you know? Like, Rest in peace, silly bitch. Yeah. yeah. Like, people make mistakes, man. You can't blame the substance. I mean, it's like, what are we going to do? Are we going to outlaw cars because people get in accidents? Are we going to outlaw knives because people stab people? The idea that adults can't make their own decisions has been the folly of man since civilization was created we have to figure out what decisions are the right ones educate each other and then move forward from there but to tell someone that they can't handle it because jim over here jumped off the fucking roof everybody Mm -hmm. all those positive experiences they had eating pot we're gonna flush those down the toilet because we lost jim 
Okay? Jim is a wild man. Jim was fucking crazy. Yeah, Jim used to work a tightrope and you know, he used to do uh, fucking backflips off the garage, but whatever. We loved him and he's gone, so no more pot for everybody. He'd be like, what are you talking about? I mean, are we going to outlaw guns every time someone commits suicide? Are we, what are we going to do? What kind of a goofy world are we going to create? Because if you just make everything illegal, everything that kills you is going to be illegal. You're going to have nothing. You're going to have no electricity. There'll be no water because people could fucking drown. There'll be no food because sometimes food goes bad and people die of food poisoning. There'll sure. be everything. You're going to take away everything. You, you literally, if you want to take away things that kill people, you literally have to remove life itself. No more dogs, because dogs bite people. No more spiders, because spiders can poison you. We're going to have to poison all the spiders, because they can poison people. But we can't have spider poison, because that kills babies if they get at it under the sink. So we'll have no life. There will be no life. It's just preposterous. And the idea that Colorado is going to step in and legislate that. What we need to do is get all those fucking people high. Where is that coming from? I mean, what? Some dummies. Yeah. Some what's what's the issue? Like I didn't. They're worried about people freaking out on edibles. I mean, that's mm. all it is. Is it so strong? Yeah, but so what? Don't so eat as what? much. Yeah. Lower the dose. You know what's really strong? Alcohol. It's everywhere. Go no, to a dude. fucking store. Drink a bottle of Jack Daniels. You're dead. Jesus. You're dead in three hours, or whatever it takes. You know, maybe you got a better tolerance than me. But if you eat a fucking, you know, you drink a gallon jug of Jack Daniels, most likely you're a goner. It's uh, it's really yeah. That's there's some truth there. I I used to. I don't really drink at all anymore. Just, and I think most of that is probably related to my job because you, know, you spend you spend night after night looking out at rooms full of people that are very drunk. Right. And it 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 gives you a certain I don't know. And plus, looking back on my life, all the dumbest shit I ever did, alcohol was pretty much directly related. You know, all of it. The worst decisions I ever made. It wasn't all because I was on hard drugs. It was you know, go figure. No, it's it's the number one sanctioned drug i mean it's what everybody does to have a good time after work let's go have a drink i'm not opposed to having a drink i like having a drink i really do i like drinking i don't drink too much i don't get fucked up mm -hmm. but i've been fucked up and i've had a great time you know yeah it's bad for you but so is a lot of there's, there's really nothing worse than a drunk very few things very an few obnoxious things drunk. worse than an obnoxious drunk yeah especially a violent obnoxious drunk it's the worst the worst is, have you ever been on a date with a girl and you're sober and she's drunk? That's disastrous. Really drunk girls are the worst. <laughs> really that, drunk guys. That's the worst. They're the worst. I think really drunk guys are the worst because they're more violent than the really drunk girls. You know, those are, it's, it's sad at the shows. They're the, they're the only ones that ever want to talk to me. Like the, the other guys in the band are young and they get hit on by the girls. The girls never want to talk to Sturgill, man. They, it's always like the really big, like large drunk guy and they they all like give me the bear hug and, and i get i get i get the whaling thing and then they're just like hugging me and i'm i'm, I'm levitating off the ground and they're giving me like this thing like fucking man you're uh, the shit dude yeah that one song man damn dude uh and those are the only people that ever want to talk to me they're like the really huge like wildebeest drunk really redneck guys that's my curse. Yeah, they're fun to talk to, uh, man. They're fucking great. I have a good time talking to a lot of those dudes. <laughs> I do. I, I think there's, there's a certain <laughs> romance and fun involved in alcohol consumption that I embrace. Uh, it's not the end-all, be-all, but it's not bad. There's some fun to alcohol. You know, it's an irresponsible, oftentimes reckless, stupid, impulsive feeling and state of mind. But with the right people, that shit works. 
you know yeah it's just it's bad for your health that's the I real a lot of number people one that issue shouldn't, that shouldn't smoke pot you fuck know? yeah everything hits people differently yeah i know a lot of people that shouldn't drink though a lot more people that shouldn't drink than shouldn't do anything else right i know friends that i have friends that smoke pot but can't drink they, they're alcoholics but they'll still smoke pot so they don't drink yeah well yeah. They, well it's not even so but they can they can smoke pot and they're fine but if they drink they're off the rails the gene just yeah that weird a lot of irishmen uh, a lot of that that weird gene it just it just hits them like a truck they can't do it they can't regulate it, it takes over whoa whoa I mean, we were we were in Ireland uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there you talk about some fucking savages, great people though, man. Oh yeah, just if all the places in Great Britain or Europe that we've played, it's the, it feels the most like the states because they're just like you know, and, and a lot of the British and the Scottish audiences are so atten- intensely attentive and, and appreciative that it's almost disconcertingly quiet when you get to Ireland. There's like. Fah! Yeah, you know, like, yeah. You're, you're like, yep, okay, done this before. Uh, they like American country music. They fucking love it, man. Wow, that's awesome. Scottish and the Irish, especially. Because, well, it all came from there. Really? Yeah, all country, bluegrass, anything. It's all just a derivative of of, of Scotch Irish folk music that came over with with the settlers. We just kind of no shit drink whiskey and sit on a porch for a hundred years, and it just got faster and faster. No shit. But yeah, uh, spe- traditional Irish music and a lot of Scottish fiddle tunes. Um, like the mandolin is tuned in D, like just like a bagpipe, because when the pipes got outlawed, they started playing a lot of those songs on stringed instruments. Wow! And why did they get? Why did the pipes get outlawed? Uh, for being it, annoying? It, no, for basically it was their the for British. There's the British equivalent of the the law against inciting a riot. You Whoa! Know, like somebody pulled out some fucking bagpipes back in the day, like some yeah. shit was yeah, <laughs> it was gonna go down, man. So uh, they. Wow, they made a law against bagpipes. Yeah, they outlawed them for That's a long time. Hilarious. How long? I don't know. Like years? For, yeah. Jamie will find out. They, you know, just, wow. That's so insane. All of that tradition kind of came over, and that a lot of it's where a lot of country music, the the melodies and the themes and the elements, of the, they're very similar. Is that why, like, that Lord of the Dance shit, like when they were all step like, dancing, yeah. a little bit like line dancing? Yeah, well. Isn't it? That's a little questionable. I don't know. We'll go. I don't know. What, Michael, what the fuck was his name? The Lord of the Dance? Flat. Flatly. Flatly. Yeah. That yeah. was short-lived. People were like, yeah, let's go Irish dancing. No, let's not. No. I, I did th- it for a little I while. I think he still, I, actually, I think I saw a fucking billboard for it when I was There's a few there. suckers left in town. Oh, man. <laughs> most, most people got hip to that and went, wait, 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 wait. What the fuck are we watching? What is that dude doing up there, man? That was weird. Yeah. But yeah, it's all, it's all interconnected. That's amazing. They I didn't really, know that. They really do. Really, I mean, I've, man, especially I've, in Glasgow and Dublin, I, we, we feel like we've almost been adopted at this point. Really? They just, they're so appreciative. How often do you play over there? I've been over five or six times this year. No shit. Yeah, I actually, we're, we haven't really started our U.S. tour on the album. The album came back in May, but I've spent the majority of the year in Europe. Wow. Why is that? It's just, it's important. It was always important to me, like, to to go over there and play for those people. And Why? I don't know. Just free travel, really, man. And plus, you get to fucking play music every night and see Europe. And uh, right, I think I, I honestly, well, here careers can be such. It, it's a little. It, it has the potential to be a little bit more flash in the pan based over here. People get bored quicker. But uh, I've just had a lot of friends that are musicians that said if you make the effort and you go over, 
and 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 they see you they see you taking the trouble and the time to come over like they're they're loyal they're just fans for life i'll probably still be touring over there long after any career i have here's dried up really yeah that's amazing what yeah. about is that england as well or Eng- just Ireland? england not so much i mean th- there's a market but it, it it appears to be sincerely and genuinely appreciated in in the celtic areas Dublin and Belfast and Glasgow and Edinburgh and uh, you know these 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 are really very musical cities at their core, but they just you know anything poetry related or you know storytelling they just really love it. How upset were they that YouTube put their songs on every iPhone? Were they bummed out? I don't know. Was Dublin pissed? They've gone soft. I go out of my way to. Uh, stay as much the fuck out of their business as possible when i'm there just, right you know just show up and do my job because it's always you know do you know the, th- the story about youtube putting their uh no. youtube put their new album on every iphone the other day i'm in my car and oh! my phone starts playing random and all of a sudden i got some youtube song oops i'm sorry bono apologizes for youtube album being <laughs> automatically added to apple that's itunes library now that you say that man i was backstage yesterday syncing my phone up to a, to a new laptop i got on the road and I, and I was getting all the cloud shit and i looked down and there's a fucking u2 album on exactly music. okay i was wondering why is this here yeah why is that there i don't want that i don't want that i'm in my car the other day and i had my car plugged in i got that thing you know that plugs into the stereo system it's playing random i just do that sometimes so they monopolized itunes basically well they figured out a way to launch their album on itunes but the problem is a lot of people that buy an iphone aren't u2 fans that's a fucking very presumptuous thing and you're dealing with billions of these fucking things being sold so how many of them have u2 songs on them all of them I mean, how many of they're, they're selling? I mean, they might sell 100 million iPhones, right? That's all with a U2 album on it. That's stupid. That's not how many U2 would sell. U2's a very popular band. I'm sure a lot of people would be super happy to get u two song for free with a new iPhone. Mm-hmm. But a it's lot of people they wouldn't. They sold them with them. They pushed them onto the existing phones. Yes. I had a 5S. Showed oh, up on my really? Phone. Yeah, yeah. Just showed up. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you update the operating it system? Wasn't e- not even that. No? It just showed up what just through itunes no yeah just showed up that's dirty oh like that's was, uh, even dirty like you already purchased it and you just didn't download it yet and oh my just showed up god that's that's actually disgusting yeah. that's a disaster that's why he said sorry <sighs> why did he let that go i read the other day where he he also said that uh he's been wearing those fucking glasses for 20 years because he's got glaucoma yeah do you buy that you look a little incredulous Yep, the, jury, the, the jury's out. Jury's you know, out. I wonder. Yeah, he's probably got called on it. You know, people are like, hey, man. Well, I mean, why is it just now coming up, though? I mean, people have been wondering what the fuck. I mean, remember he had, like, the fly, these big mm-hmm. the big black ones back in the day? Yeah, and, like, embarrassed. Everybody yeah, just let that shit slide. Like, nobody was like, hey, man, what the fuck? I wonder if he smokes weed. Because if you uh, have glaucoma, you're allowed to. Mm-hmm. It reduces interocular pressure. Mm-hmm. It's one of the legit reasons to get a medical marijuana prescription. My grandfather has really bad glaucoma now, and I, but he's never, I would never, I don't even know how I would approach that conversation. To with give him, him weed? Well, yeah, he's such an old school, like, just a hillbilly, you know. Right. Just never, never, you know. I, I don't even know how I would convince him that this actually will make you feel better. Just and, sit him down. You know. Um, sit him down. Yeah. Get him drunk first. 
Yeah, he's he's pretty pretty stoic guy, man. Well, then just sit him down. Maybe I just don't tell him. Just give him the brownies, and then uh, the next thing you know, you yeah. might freak out and have a heart attack and die. Right. Well, that would be very bad. Yes. Yeah. Sit him down. All right. I'll sit him down. Me. You're a grown man now. I get time to off you. to go home and actually see him. I might yeah. do that sometimes. <laughs> but listen, man, we're out of time. We just did, ran through three hours. Really? Yep. Holy shit. Crazy, right? That's nuts. Time flies. It all just slips away. Uh, tell people uh, your website, SturgillSimpson.com. Um, your your two albums, uh, you can get them on iTunes, and I, I listed them off uh, while you were taking a leak. If anybody's interested, you got to, I mean, my favorite songs, I, I there's a bunch of them. You can have The Crown. I fucking love that. Off your first one, that's a great fucking, why are you laughing? Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's nothing. What? It it's it's that it's that it's that song. Everybody's got that song they wish they never wrote. That's your song. That's my song, man. dude. That song's great. I, yeah, I, I fucking love that. It song. It was a lot of fun, and I had a, a, I wrote it in about twenty minutes, like seven thirty in the morning, and we ended up recording it that day. We just happened to go into a studio, actually Waylon's old studio in Nashville, Hillbilly Whoa. Central. We got the opportunity to record in there, and Dave was like, "What do you got that's new?" And I'd written that song and another song literally that morning before I knew we were going to be in there. And I was like, well, and I, and I pl- so I played it for him and the rest of the guys. Of course, they're just laughing their ass off. Right. And they're like, we got to cut that. So we cut it. And then I he- at the end of the day, I heard the playback. And I'm like, I'm going to be singing that fucking thing when I'm 60 years old. That's going <laughs> to be the one. And sure as shit, man, every show, every fucking show, uh, does, it never fails. There's that one guy and in between every song, King Turd, motherfucker! <laughs> you know, just like, play the turd! You know, there's these, and he, like, he follows us. It has to be the same guy, I don't know. Well, when you start off with songs saying, I've been spending all my money on weed and pills, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 how it launches. You got you got to get the, both albums, folks. They're, they're both very different, which I, I thought was really fascinating, too, before I got to meet you and understand what it's from, uh, what, what caused it. Um, and then the other one, Meta Modern... Meta modern sounds and country music. I love that too, man. Thank you, dude. Brother. You're the shit. Thank you very much. Thank thanks you. for being no, you. Man. Thanks for being on here. And please thanks reconsider for, your five album thing. For telling you about it. Yeah, that's the internet, man. The internet knows all. It's fucking scary. All right, you dirty bitches. We'll see you uh, soon this week. A lot of a lot of podcasts, including that lady Sue from uh, Life Below Zero. I'm very excited to talk to her. Cameron Haynes is here on Friday too. Awesome.